It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What's Real podcast, episode 154. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my cohort, co-conspirator, co-contributor, and my tag team championship partner in podcasting. The J himself, Jerry Bajoris. What's going on, the J? Oh, you know how it is. Hey, yeah, it's the world of the What's Real podcast, episode 154, as you said, hitting the mid-150s. Your boy, the J, is pumped up, as he always is and needs to be. But on the other hand, you know how my life's been right now, brother. I am <laughs> through a cyclone of, of stuff right now, so... This is most likely as it typically is from week to week in the world of what's real going to be an interesting episode because, uh, yeah, I'm just all over the place. You know, call me a fireman putting out all the fires I'm putting out or a juggler with all the juggling I'm doing. But I'm still in a good headspace, as you know, hey, and especially in our world here, I'm looking forward to this positive entertainment escape. I can tell you that. But the Pulsation Nation is represented. The Jays in a good headspace. I am not. My fucking head is in the clouds, but we're going to try anyway. So uh, we got a pretty good show for you guys this week. Of course, we have a bunch of wrestling stuff to talk about. The new WWE biography on China. Uh, we're going to talk about that as well as the latest episode of WWE Rivals on Cena and The Rock. And we have a double dose. I don't even know how the fuck we're going to make it through this. I know. This I've been Jay. doing training, man. I'm oh, crap. A Somewhat. A a double dose of Thursday Night Prime. We got some Jean-Claude Van Damme goodness with 1990s Lionheart. And we're going to amp up the sleaze this week with 1986's Certain Fury. Uh, of course, we're going to be talking some goofs and much, much more. But let's get into it. The J. Uh, we said we're going to talk a whole shitload of wrestling, and we're going to do that starting right now. Uh, this past weekend was the AEW Revolution pay-per-view. It took place on March 5th at the Chase Center in San Francisco. Uh, the J, you actually watched this one. I did not get to it. I was uh, dead for a large portion of that night. Um, not literally because I'm alive now. Uh, but we had a six-man tag match that was on the pre-show, which was Mark Briscoe and the Lucha Bros uh, versus Aria Davari and the varsity athletes Josh Woods and Tony Nice. Uh, they beat them by pinfall in 12 minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, I don't know if you watched this or not, the J, did you? No, I missed. Uh, I started just the normal pay per view. I missed some of the the pre match stuff. Okay, so we opened up with Ricky Starks defeating Chris Jericho by pinfall uh, in 13 minutes and 35 seconds. Uh, first up, how was the match, the J? And second up, I'm glad Ricky Starks got the W. Yeah, it was. It was kind of what we were hoping for in our preview and breakdown for for a, a solid match on what you know you never typically can predict the chemistry between two guys, especially with an aging Jericho, even though Jericho's Jericho. And dude, Jericho is one of them dudes that will out of nowhere just have shitty chemistry with a dude that, and a match just sucks. That's what we were thinking, you know, would, would have been a worst case scenario. And luckily that wasn't the case. They actually had pretty decent chemistry. Uh, there was some solid action, you know, good near falls, things like that. The crowd was into it. You know, good good opener. You know, having Jericho open the, the official uh, pay-per-view coming out to Judas and everything, getting the crowd amped up. And Ricky Starks is is pretty hot right now, uh, of course, being in the spot that he's in, which was the whole point of this match. And like you said, we, we even, uh, again, mentioned that in the preview, that there really wouldn't be much of a point unless there was a particular specific storyline element uh, for Jericho to go over. Other than that, you, you, you know, that was the point, was for Jericho to, to give Ricky a good match and put him over, and that's what happened. 
And I'm curious too. So what's your impression on this? Are these, are they done with this? These guys going to move on or you think they're going to keep going? I think they're going to move on from, from the way it okay. seemed at the pay-per-view that this was the, the last match between them for, you know, the, the feud. And the next matchup is, I kind of have a similar question for you. It was the final burial match between Jungle Boy Jack Perry defeating Christian Cage in 14 minutes and 50 seconds. This feud's been going on for almost a year uh, with Christian being in and out with injury. And I was watching Dynamite last week and I liked the way that they built this matchup. I was like, it just kind of feels rushed though to do it this way now. Um, but nonetheless, they got almost 15 minutes on pay-per-view. Uh, what do you think about this one? And again... Is this the end of this feud, the Jay? Uh, yeah, so this was a good match. Uh, the stipulation was kind of weird, obviously. It, it was like kind of a new thing. Final burial match. I didn't know exactly what it was. and It almost looked like the setup was a combination of WWE's inventions of a casket match and buried alive. Uh, luckily, because okay. you know it's coincidental that we covered the the big buried alive between Undertaker and Mankind from back in the day last week for for rivals, and we talked yeah. about how they didn't realize how tough it was to fill in a, a grave. So I'm, I'm glad they didn't go that way. It was basically a casket match. It was just the casket was like on this kind of mound of dirt, you know, with like the shovels. So oh, okay. It was more okay. for looks. You know, basically, it was just put your opponent in the casket and shut the door. You know, was, was, was the casket at ringside? No, it was up at the uh, at the top of the ramp. Oh, okay, I see. What, I, no, I kind of like that because it it's like you have to you have to drag the dude down there. Yeah, and, and of so course, like it kind of you know. Yeah, it gave him an excuse to go all over the arena and things like that. But yeah, this was this was solid, man. You know, Jungle Boy did the traditional wrestling thing of of being in jeans. You know, wrestlers are known for for that. For oh yeah, street like fight. The, the the death match street fight rules, which, which I like. It's just those little detail kind of things, just to to make a match di different. You know, which is good in wrestling. With as we say, just how much content weekly wrestling has, and and a lot of people were like, only Christian with his goofy fashion sense that he's always had within his. career career on tv and he has on like a cutoff turtleneck which it's like who the oh, hell would wear he's that going full heel yeah. that's why like trying to be a dickhead but yeah but but yeah but sol you, solid match and, and like you, you had asked hey Ed, I, I think this is the end I, I think that's the point to this is the end of the feud i mean he buried buried him alive it was final burial you know i think that's the point okay. so I, I don't foresee this continuing okay Next up was the six man for the AEW World Trios Championship. And we saw the House of Black defeat the Elite by pinfall in 18 minutes. So we got new AO, AEW World Trios champions. And uh, you said this was a really good match. Um, but I kind of question why, like, unless they're going to use Kenny and the Elite for a bunch of other stuff coming up here, which is very possible, I don't really understand the switch right now. I think that's what it is. I think that. They're they're moving on with creative with the Bucks and Kenny Omega, so that that's what you're going to get here. And there's all these rumors. I don't know the levity of them. Uh, we talk about modern social media. I mean, you can only take anything with a grain of salt, of course. And I'm sure you've you've heard those where Kenny Omega is possibly testing the waters in WWE. Maybe um, we'll have to see about that. I mean, if that's the case, then you can really see why they're going away from being trios champions with the elite. However, nonetheless, I think even within AEW saying that those rumors are bullshit with Kenny Omega moving forward and staying in AEW, that he's going to pick up on his single act and the bucks are going to kind of go off and, and you know, they're, they're the EVP. So I'm sure they're going to choose kind of what their creative direction is going to be. 
but yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think they're kind of getting away from the the trio stuff now, which is why they put the House of Black over. Who who should carry the belts pretty good. And this this was really entertaining match, man. Just nonstop action, and and with the mix of guys, you know, you got the size of Brody King, so they were able to do some spots with that. You know, then you got Malachi is always able to go, and and you know all these guys can go. So so yeah, you had a really good spot match, and and it was you know pretty much what we expect action wise. But uh, again, I think that that's not a surprise that the House of Black went over with how things are kind of going to be shuffling moving forward creatively with the elite. And I want you you brought up a great point about uh, kind of like Kenny Omega and his his contract and everything. Um, I'm with you. I don't think Kenny's going anywhere. Um, and if you remember just a few months ago, like the other rumor, you know, outside of Omega and shit was that FTR was leaving. And I didn't believe that either. And then earlier today, I saw that they signed a long-term extension with AEW. And I'm like, I didn't think they were going anywhere. Like, I kind of felt like they weren't being used as much because they were, you know, they were trying to get that all sorted out. And now that they have a new contract, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see them like being the main tag team in the company here very soon. So, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. But, you know, I think that like whenever that contract shit comes up for guys, like I think they use it, obviously. Like it's a bargaining chip to get more money, which is smart. But like as fans and knowing what we know about like their careers and where they've been and, you know, things like that. Like, do, do you think, were you at any point thinking that FTR was going to go back to WWE? Cause I just really, no, didn't no, see I, that happening. yeah, I think they really had a bad taste in their mouth since, you know, they've talked about it on podcast, how the uh, last run they had in WWE went with that was around the raw anniversary show with the click and everything. And, yep. you know, uh, they, they had mentioned on a, a podcast how Shawn Michaels treated them and things like that. So I don't, I don't see them, you know, with the classic thing in professional wrestling, of course, Hey, I'd never say never. I, I just feel like it's going to be a long time if they ever get back there. Uh, other than that, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. And I mean, I think it's, and people like to point to Cody and I'm like, you can leverage yourself as a singles guy to get, but like they hold more value in a singles guy than they do in a tag team of any kind. And if they would sign somebody like an FTR, the WWE's, that's one thing that I'll give them credit for. They've done a pretty good job of building up some of the tag teams that they have. Like, here's something that's kind of wild to say, but like, it's true to me at this point. The Usos are one of the greatest tag teams in WWE history, like they're top five. Like, there's no way around it. They've been there forever. They've had the belts a thousand times. They've been on both shows. They've had good matches with a shitload of different teams. Like, there's no argument that you can really have against that, in my opinion. And with an FTR going back there, it's like, they're going to put them over the Usos. They're going to put them over the Street Profits. They're going to put them, like, you know what I mean? Like, they already have a pretty large litany of tag teams that they have a lot of time and investment into that I just don't see another team, like, it, now, Cody could come in and they could put him over a lot of singles guys that they've been doing that with, but that's because they value the singles wrestler considerably more than a tag team. And, and it goes both ways as well, because for FTR, they're more in-ring heavy guys and traditional guys, and AEW gives that uh, uh, you know them a better opportunity with their style to have better matchups. Uh, they could do stuff with New Japan guys and things that, yep. that I think they want to do. Absolutely. And that's a that's another selling point for them, I believe, you know, at least from right. what they've said, unless they're just full of shit, which is, you know, it's wrestling. That's always possible, too. It's always a word. Um, next up, dude, I, I got to laugh here and I'm going to need some clarification from you on this one. 
Uh, we had the three-way for the AEW Women's World Championship. Jamie Hayter would keep against Soraya and Ruby Soho by pinfall in 10 minutes. Um, I did see that Ruby turned uh, after the match on Jamie Hayter uh, to go with basically the quote-unquote WWE women. Yeah, which that's I what they're fucking, separating them. I, I hate that. I think it's a shitty thing to do. It's, it's a stupid angle because it basically buries your own company. Um, but, dude, this fucking kills me that they're going to do a three-way with, you know, like three of their, like their champion and two of their bigger woman stars. They give it fucking 10 minutes. Yeah, and that's what it was. Like, the match was decent for what it was. But, yeah, it just seemed like even on the card and creative and booking-wise that they weren't given too much respect, you know, just, just yeah. for that fact. Like, you guys are getting under 10 minutes on the pay-per-view and and they did some some cool stuff and everything but you know we always say this like how much of a legendary kind of match are you not that we were expecting that but i'm just saying how much can you do in in i mean it was officially i had the the thing was at 9 47 so like less than 10 minutes you can only do so much and dude it's okay here's kind of a funny thought right i know it's it's changed immensely since then with you know talent being brought in and stuff like that and booking and everything else um, and this isn't anything against Jamie Hayter. I think Jamie Hayter's pretty good, and all the bad stuff that's happening has nothing to do with her being champion. It's just the way that things were booked. Um, I know that Britt Baker got a lot of shit when she was champion. Like they were like, "Oh, it's Tony's favorite," you know, Tony Khan's favorite. That's you know, but like, dude, maybe we're actually not giving Britt enough credit because like. That women's division was slamming for a while because her is champion and there wasn't shit underneath her. And it's like, dude, like they're not doing as good now. Like, so is that because of booking? Is that because of talent or it was Brit really that good? Like it, you don't really know. And there's not really an answer to that question, but it's kind of interesting looking back on it now. Brit's good. It's also the thing, you know, classic, professional wrestling storytelling that goes back decades with the the really good heel champ and then you could set up the chase and that you know that really never came into fruition with any top baby face you you kind of had thunder rosa coming up at the time and that's who ended up defeating brit for the belt and it didn't work but it didn't work exactly and and we said about thunder there was just something off with her and then you hear about more controversial backstage stuff and that's why i you know she still isn't hasn't appeared on AEW TV in some time. So yeah, I think that went I'm, into it too. But I think that Britt was just the solid heel that, you know, the baby, any kind of baby face you can build up and, and have the chase. And that was a good formula. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out with Thunder. And then you put the belt on Hater, and Hater's kind of been all over the place. And, and like so many people and talent in AEW, she's a solid worker. You know, she's a, a huge woman, really believable really hard hitting like that's what i like about she's her gotten better yeah like she has the hard hitting women's matches so so it's cool but yeah we we said that the the women's booking and creative in aew just the division as a whole has been kind of shaky and that just continues and again reiterating this says it all with less than 10 minutes on the pay-per-view and just a very mediocre match and dude i gotta ask a question here just to get your opinion on it and i know it hasn't been super long, and we haven't gotten maybe a fair sample size, right? But just where we're at right now, right? This could change. Dude, is Soraya like the worst signing that AEW's ever? Like the outsider type thing? Like not when they started the company and shit like that, but like 
that's one of their worst acquisitions, in my opinion, since the company started. So far, she's not off to a good start whatsoever. Yeah, and I don't, I really don't see it turning around, but I, I do hope that I'm wrong, but I don't know. It, that's not an easy thing to come back from. So uh, next up was the Texas Deathmatch. Uh, Hangman Adam Page defeated Moxley by submission in 24 minutes and 45 seconds. Um, I think that's the right move here uh, with Hangman. That's why I said that I thought Hangman would win this match because Moxley's been pretty much unbeatable the last year or so. Um, and the Texas Deathmatch, obviously, is kind of a way to put over Hangman as a bad motherfucker. Um, and he very well could be the next person to be in line to face an MJF, possibly, or something. Um, but 20, 25 minutes almost here for this match sounds about right to me. Uh, I know that because I was talking to you a little bit during the pay-per-view and you were like, Moxley's fucking dying right now, which obviously I would expect. But uh, is this basically what I expect, like an all-out fucking brawl between these two? I assume both of them probably bled. Yeah, yeah, it was that kind of match. It was, it's, it's like almost like Moxley, Moxley's place on the pay-per-view. You know, he's gonna yeah. be, he's yep. gonna be doing the Moxley style matches and and take it or leave it. You know, this is something that we know Jim Cornette's gonna shit a brick over and and can't stand. And and I'm I'm at that point, and we've talked about this before, Hayad, with deathmatch wrestling. And this is a Texas death match. Yeah, it's you know two top tier talent in AEW and on the AEW pay per view stage, but it's still a Texas death match in Moxley. So it's the death match style, and I just feel like they could have a much better match, just regular, you know. But it, it is what it is, you know. And and they go to the the barbed wire stuff, and I'm just not huge on that. You know, they did a big fork spot. Moxley grabbed the fork and, and dug it into uh, Adam Page and everything. And for a lifelong fan of ECW, and we always talk about how much we loved ECW as teenagers because it was like the perfect age for us, at least, to have that rebel company with all the sex and violence. But yeah. where I'm at now as a, a fan, and I just must say from my perspective, every once in a while, because we talked about kind of when we first started hearing about GCW and we caught yeah. some of that, it was like one of those situations where it's been so long years at this point that I watched deathmatch wrestling that I was like, okay, it's, it's something different. And I, and I understand it enough that I could give it a, a chance here and there, but overall it's just not my style. And and that's kind of what stands out in this match. It was kind of just like, I felt like they could have had a much better match instead of just worrying about the, the barred wire spots and pulling out a fork well, and bleeding, you know? I mean, in fairness, I think they've had a handful of matches up to this point. So they, they have. That's the other thing too. It was dumb to do that. Yeah, you it's, know? it's different and, for their, you know, their match history. And you know this about me when it comes to wrestling. There, there's things that I like and things that I don't like about a lot of different styles, right? But I'm always good with the style, no matter what it is. Like even if it's not my favorite thing, I like it when the best of the best are doing it, right? And I think that's kind of where Moxley is. Like, he's not one of these, like, garbage backyarder dudes that is just insane that will cut his fucking hand off or bleed fucking buckets because he doesn't have any, you know, other traits or skills. This is a choice that Moxley is making. And he is good at it. And if that's what he wants to do, I'm not against him doing it. Like, I, I like the fact that he's still in a... It, they're changing it. Like, and I understand him doing it this way because he's not the champ. He's not the main guy in the company, but he's still the fucking boogeyman. Like, he's the dude that, like, you feud with this motherfucker, and it's going to be nasty shit. Like, he's not fucking around. Like, it's a good way to portray a character. Like, 
you know, like the first day you show up in AEW, quote unquote, as a character. And everybody's like, do whatever the fuck you want around here, but stay the fuck away from Moxley. Like, you don't want to fuck with him. He's nuts. Yeah, it's cool for and character dudes, development. Yeah. And, and, and the characters just got to look, no, I'm good enough to be. And are you sure you want to fucking do that, man? Like, that's a cool character to have in your company. In a, in a lot of ways, not in the same manner, but in a lot of ways, that's like kind of what The Undertaker was in WWE for years. Like, do whatever the fuck you want here, but stay the fuck away from the dead man. Like, it's Moxley and he can't do that type of gimmick, but it's still the same, like, character in the company. Like that one dude that it's like, don't fuck with him. It's going to be a problem for you. Yeah, so I like that. We've talked about how, how, especially with the length of AEW pay-per-views, you like to have that variety. So it's like this slot, you know, with Moxley being involved is going to be the, the wild match, bleeding stuff we're talking about. But that's instantaneously, from my perspective, within my take, going to polarize and kind of ostracize some of your audience, you know, like we talk about the things that there's no in between and, and I'm like, it's different scenarios. Just talking out loud. I'm kind of in between on this uh, again, if I'm like more in the mood and, and I like that at least it's a, you know, a different kind of match for the card and everything. But at the end of the day, just mass audience wise, I think that there's a lot of people that this is their thing. And then there's a lot of people where it's just not their thing. See, and okay. And, and I typically won't do this, but I'm going to do it here because we don't do it very often on the show. This is where I disagree with you. Play devil's And I'll tell you why. Well, it's not even just that. It's like, this is the, like, I know people say this about a lot of shit and they're just, it's just garbage. Like, and I rarely say this about things, but this is one instance where I will pull it out. This is the pussification of everything. Because when I was coming up watching fucking wrestling, it's like, dude, one of the first things that would get my attention constantly were the fucking magazines. And I'm, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You're in the grocery store, and what do you, the ones were, dude, buckets of fucking blood. Like, that just makes you pick that shit up. And I feel like in a lot of ways with wrestling, and I, I do the same thing with horror movies, too, in a way, because I'm a big fan of that, where people like to laugh at everything. Oh, this is fucking stupid. No, look at this dumb shit. Until something makes them uncomfortable. And then it's like, oh, yeah, well, how's Moxley? Oh, he has ketchup all over his head. No, he doesn't, moron. Oh, it's blood packets. Nope, they don't do that shitty. Well, then how do they do it? With blades? I've had full-out arguments with people about this before because they didn't believe me. And I'm like, and I would show them something. They'd be like, nope, watch. And they're like, oh, fuck, really? I'm like, yeah, it's not what you think it is. That's the thing that's kind of cool about wrestling. They're not out here killing each other, but it's not fucking special effects makeup and nothing hurts either. It's somewhere in the middle. And the fact that they can toe that line makes it interesting. And I'm sorry, but if fucking blood makes you uncomfortable, that's bullshit. Because you think UFC's fucking worried about that? No, people watch it for the violent aspect of it. That's what wrestling's supposed to be. If you want dudes doing fucking ballet, go watch ballet. This is wrestling. It's supposed to be a simulated fight and in simulated fighting, to be more believable, sometimes there's blood. And sometimes there's crazy fucking matches. So people want it both ways. They don't want to be offended, but they want to watch wrestling and they want it to be violent. But then they're like, oh, it's weird. No, wouldn't you bleed there? Like, yeah, but you're a pussy and we got to take blood off the show because you fuckers can't handle it. Like, you can't have your cake and eat it too with that. That's what annoys the fuck out of me about it. Not necessarily with you, because we talk about wrestling all the time. I know how the fuck you feel about certain things. But, like, 
you probably were like that at one point growing up or watching wrestling. We're like, the, I mean, fuck, you were a fan of ECW. The blood and guts and the violence had to be part of the appeal at one point. Yeah, that's kind of my point. Like, there was times where I was buying uh, death, ta- you know, death match tapes, and I was getting into uh, CZW. They did their tournament of death every year, and I'd get those DVDs. You, you know, being a lifelong wrestling fan, it's like anything, man. You go through different phases. You know, and, and I think that was my point is like I'm kind of to 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 the phase that, you know, it's not like the violence in this match like offended me or anything, you know, by and any dude, means. And, and I will give you credit here, too, because I don't want to go too hard on you. Like, it's not like you said they shouldn't do shit like this or, you know, like you're down with it. But you're I get what you're saying for the mass audience. I guess my rant there was more against the mass audience. Like, well, if you don't like this, then I guess wrestling isn't for you. Go watch something else then. Well, the, the the other aspect too is the fact that like GCW that I keep using an example because we, we've even talked about that. It's kind of like the closest thing to what a modern ECW would be in, in America. And that's an entire company around that. So it's like you can avoid that. You can truly say- It's it, it's not for the mainstream. Yeah, it's a and, niche and, product. And therefore you can truly say to a fan like, well then, you know, if you don't like it, don't watch it. And that's easy to do. With Moxley's character, you have this as part of AEW as a whole, you know? So mm-hmm. these things get interspliced. And if, if you're not into it, I, I can see you just looking at it as, as it's not your thing. And, and in the end, though, just where we're at on the review of the pay-per-view, I, I still saw, like, you know, the dudes worked really hard. And, and again, the, the most positive thing I can say about the match here is that it was the the kind of variety, you know, it added that variety. You know, this was your crazy deathmatch portion do- of Revolution. And that is one of the biggest compliments I can give AEW, regardless of what I feel about their shows sometimes or whatever. Like the variety, the fact that they seem to always I love do that. that. Yes, that's a smart move. They always have done well by that. And, and then obviously, again, the Jay, I have to ask too: Are these guys done? Yeah, I would hope so. Okay, I think this seemed okay. like a closure pay per view because I'm saying that for everyone when you bring it up. But I, I'm really thinking that that this was closure for a lot of these feuds that have been ongoing. <laughs> you know. Well, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you about it in the next match. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's fine if you do. We'll answer it. But but I, I want to bring up here, Hayed, too. This is something that I, I mentioned to you off air that I thought was a really cool part of this pay-per-view. And, and I'm assuming, I'm just making the assumption here, I'm assuming that it was due to the fact that the main event was the Iron Man, uh, Iron Man match. And there were so many matches still on the card to fit in. There was yeah. no promos, backstage interviews, video packages. It went from match to match with just a few minutes between bell to bell. And that made the pay per view stand out a lot differently. And I kind of like that. I'm not saying yeah, that you don't, you know, do that every time, but this being a kind of different formula for the pay per view, I, I kind of thought that was cool, man. It made it ma- pretty fast paced and it was still a four hour show with all these matches on it. And dude, I've, I, I've always kind of felt like that. Like, pay-per-views are not time to run angles and do promos and shit like that like it's time to have the matches that people paid for you want to do promos and angles and shit that's literally what your tv show is supposed to be for so if AEW were to like start doing that more often that way i would be 100 on board because i'm like that that means you're maximizing your television time that's so that's I a smart it, way of it, going about it, it definitely help pace it and you know when you're paying for something, like remember how pissed off we used to get years ago with like WWE you order a pay-per-view and they're doing like an in-ring interview and you're like, this is not why I buy pay-per-view. I buy pay-per-view to see matches. And then and then one of the matches would get 
three minutes and 13 seconds because of that. It's like, why even have a three minute and 13 minute squash thing on a pay-per-view? Yeah, it's dumb. Like there, it's not the place for it. It's lazy, frankly. But uh, next up, we had the AEW TNT Championship. Wardlow defeated Samoa Joe by submission in 10 minutes and 40 seconds to win the TNT Championship. Yay. Yeah, this this match was kind of all over the place, only a little over 10 minutes. Well, you know, we we're just breaking down that down just in comparison with the women's match because it was around the same time where I said, like, you know, how much can you really do in, in 10 minutes? I mean, you can still pull off some stuff, but, you know, you're talking Samoa Joe here and, and trying to build uh, Wardlow back up because you kind of took him off the rails. And this this really doesn't do it. I mean, the, the big part of it was the finish. Uh, I didn't truly expect that. Wardlow, you know, wanted, with a choke. Uh, so that kind of puts him over choking out Samoa Joe, who'll have that moving forward. So I could see why Tony Khan as Booker, you know, kind of looks at that as Wardlow coming off strong, being able to do that. But as far as it being any sort of, you know, match I'll remember in the next, you know, even couple weeks, uh, definitely not there. Yeah, and it's probably too because he couldn't do 15 power bombs to Samoa Joe. So Exactly. Uh, next up, we had the AEW Tag Team Championship match, which was a four-way. And in 13 minutes and 35 seconds, we saw Austin and Colton Gunn defeat the acclaimed Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, and Orange Cassidy and Danhausen. Um, whatever. I mean, it. You know, I, I like the acclaimed. I think they pulled the trigger on taking the belts off them a little too quickly. Um, I don't care for Lethal and Jarrett as a team. Um, Cassidy and Danhausen were just thrown together the week before on Dynamite. And when I seen that, I was kind of like, well, yeah, the guns are definitely keeping now. Yeah, this this was just kind of your fun match. I, I I did I was entertained by it. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't anything that wasn't more as you say, and that's why I gotta bring it up, hey, because it's it's a great description. It's it's more or less like that solid TV match, but it's on a pay-per-view. But again, do you remember the, who the multi- took the pin? Uh Danhausen. Ah. Okay, that makes sense then. So yeah. nobody else, you know, the other teams are still in play basically moving forward. So um, so basically just a time filler kind of. Yeah, and, and again, it gets a bunch of guys on. I'm sure that was part of it too. And and these are like a lot of the somewhat comedy acts with Dan Housen and, you know, the, the guns and the way they act as heels, which is funny. And of course the acclaimed. And uh, Billy Gunn even did a famouser in this match to sing. Okay. Uh, oh so, shit! Okay. So there were some spots in there, you know. Jared brings in the guitar for some stuff. So, like I said, it was it was it was entertaining. It, it was a fun match, and it didn't overstay its welcome with the 13 minute runtime. So, you know, not the worst things, but just you know another average thing on the pay per view. Next up was the main event, the 60 minute Iron Man match for the AEW World Championship, and MJF defeated Brian Danielson four to three in sudden death overtime in one hour five minutes and 20 seconds. And again, I didn't see this, but I've been told by numerous people that this is the match of the year. Yeah, I, I love this match. It, it was great seeing the evolution of MJF because he's he's been on a tear. He's been doing his thing. He's found his niche in the professional wrestling industry. Obviously, has captured the AEW World Championship, face of the company right now as the biggest heel in the business. Uh, you know, you could argue that with Roman Reigns, I guess, uh, talking out loud as we say. But nonetheless, uh, MJF really showed that he belongs, uh, you know, people could say, you know, Brian Danielson can have a match with a broom, that whole, you know, metaphor and everything. But nonetheless, that's my point is like, 
MJF wasn't the broom here. He did his thing. You know, he showed what he could do. He's doing like acais and landing it and selling his knee and all kinds of crazy shit. And man, the condition of these dudes, hey, Ed, this is like showing you the modern day Iron Man match, uh, you know, because it was even like a faster pace than Brett and Sean. You know, Brett and Sean at WrestleMania 12, they would they would do those spots here and there where they're like kind of in headlocks and stuff. This match was just nonstop for 60 plus minutes. And uh, just to give you guys a little bit more information here. So in 25 minutes and 28 seconds, Danielson got the first pinfall after hitting the knee. Uh, then he went up uh, to nothing uh, after MJF was disqualified after hitting a low blow in 26 minutes and 35 seconds. Then in 26 minutes and 43 seconds, MJF rolled up Danielson and got his first pinfall. Then MJF immediately pinned Danielson again and got a back-to-back one, so it was tied 2-2. MJF hit the Heat Seeker on uh, Brian at uh, 40 minutes and 30 seconds. He went up 3-2 at that point. Danielson got the Regal Stretch on 49 minutes and 20 seconds to tie it up 3-3. And MJF beat him with a LaBelle Lock, which is pretty you know important if you follow uh, – Brian Danielson's career, uh, and that was the one to end up in overtime. And uh, also one of the big stories to come out of this weekend with the match was during the match, uh, he apparently took a drink from a mom and threw it on a kid. The kid was apparently pissed off. Um, This was not planned. Uh, I read yesterday, too, that uh, one of the things that people got wrong was it wasn't water. It was actually tequila. (laughs) My kind of lady hate you. But Tony apparently tried to make nice, brought the kid back, had him meet a bunch of his favorite wrestlers and shit, and they seem to be okay. But, like, a lot of people are pissed off about this, and it's another thing with me where it's like, dude, I don't know about you, the J. Even as a kid, if I'd be at a wrestling show and a fucking heel did something to me that was bad, I would be fucking happy. I'd be like, <laughs> that's be talking cool about shit. that at school. Yes. And, you know. It'd be like, I'm fucking 20. I'm like, when I was a kid, MJF threw a fucking drink on me when I was at a show. I was a kid <laughs> yeah. at that pay-per-view. People are like, oh, shit, really? I'd be like, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. But, it's... you know, dude, it's, you know, I don't know what people, they're playing characters. It is what, it, like, he, it's not like he punched your kid in the face, you know. I do kind of understand maybe the parent being pissed off about the tequila. And no, I don't mean because they wasted a drink. Like you that's how I would be. Hey, come on. But, well, you're a drunk, but no, no, I'm kidding. But it's I get it. People don't want fucking booze thrown on their kids. But then again, I'm like, you're drinking booze with your kid there. So what the fuck, you know? No, I thought it, but, I thought it was funny, and, and they did. You know, at least they they gave back to the kid. They uh, like you said, they took him in the back. His favorite wrestler was Powerhouse Hobbs. He got to meet him. I think the article I said even was like, you know, this isn't hasn't been corroborated, but supposedly he was given uh, tickets to like the next time they're there or whatever, like some. Sort oh of yeah, show. Tony said he's going to be in Sacramento. Uh, another dude got the kid like a foam finger. Like there, people were trying yeah, to so, take care of the kid. So they took care of him, and I, I don't think it was anything that's going to affect his psyche in a major way. I think, like you mentioned, you'll be twenty looking back on it, like, yeah, you threw a drink on me. I was. I went viral that week. (laughs) And you know, the J, you might, you may agree with me on this to quote one of my favorite comedies of all time, lighten up Francis. Yes. So there you go. But uh, overall, I mean, I'm not going to do it because I did not see the pay-per-view. So that wouldn't be fair. But the J, what do you got for this one? We do the letter grades. You know what? what It it was, it was another really good AW just, they, they they do bring it with their pay-per-views. There, there's things that you could criticize. You know, we talk about the length, you know, obviously there's, there's 
botches and, and things that aren't great and, and everything like that. But I was thoroughly entertained. Uh, I, I always say just perspective wise, dude, I was in a really good mood to watch wrestling uh, the night Sunday night that I watched it and I didn't have anybody over uh, my son, even that typically watches wrestling with me uh, was sick, poor kid, shout out to Jace. So I watched it just by myself in my den, just fully, you know, in, intent on watching wrestling and paying attention to everything. And I really, really enjoyed this, man. They, they could have some really good pay-per-views. It, it wasn't the best one of all time, but still really solid. I think it's a nice solid B for, for the lower okay. grade ahead. But, you know, here's, here's the thing. I, I think that, and I'm, I'm kind of glad you asked that about a bunch of the feuds because that was a, a kind of big aspect of this pay-per-view was a, a lot of these matchups had been built up for a long time, i.e. Jungle Boy and Christian, or they were matchups that have taken place numerous times, i.e. Moxley and Adam Page. However, I think this was kind of a reset thing because AEW has been kind of struggling to get their full groove again. And with this being the, their first pay-per-view of 2023 i think it's a good start for them to kind of you know kind of reshuffle some things here moving forward and hopefully tony khan can get them fully back on track because you know that's what happened man i don't know placebo or whatever the case is with the vince mcmahon situation in wwe but wwe has come back tenfold from how they were you know post pandemic and everything compared to AEW like AEW I felt like was making some sort of ground within the wrestling world we we talked about the whole aesthetic of this not being the true competition of a global juggernaut that's been around for 50 plus years to a new company that just started 3 years ago I'm not saying that but just within the wrestling world having that alternative that's that's on TBS and TNT that I think the the last few months they kind of kind of got off their trajectory a bit and and this show kind of gave me hope that Tony Khan in the near future can kind of reassess things and, and hopefully start making AEW uh, kind of get rolling again. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. So that's definitely a good thing. I'm personally, even though I didn't see the pay-per-view, I'm always looking forward to Dynamite the week after pay-per-view because that's kind of where they see what they you do. know, like you, you. Yeah, you literally see the direction of everything. They're usually pretty good with that. So. That'll be cool as well. But uh, but yeah, that's our, our breakdown of uh, AEW Revolution. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. But we're up against our very first commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to be talking more wrestling as we talk about the A&E WWE biography on China and the latest WWE rivals on Cena and The Rock. So we'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Herman James with the Bush Room Podcast. Finally giving me something to do here. It's been a while since I talked to you guys, but I'm actually helping them out doing an advertisement for advertisers. That's right. If you would like to advertise here on the What's Real Podcast and join the team, just shoot us an email today. We got cheap, easy, and affordable rates, and we can hook you up with some kick-ass advertisements. Just hit us up at Gmail. It's at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Join the team with me, my brother Timothy and James, the wizard behind the boards, Cam, the J, and Hey Ed. It's the What's Real team for some advertisers. Hit us up, whatsrealpod at gmail.com today. And we're back, and it is time to get into more wrestling talk. First up, the WWE biography on China. Um, this is one that I was a little surprised they were doing to begin with. Um, if you know the history of China, you'll understand why. Uh, we'll get into all that stuff during the breakdown here. But um, 
It, we also understand that it peaked a pretty good rating uh, for A&E and makes sense because people wanted to kind of see how they were they would tell the story. Um, we've seen numerous things on China through the years. Vice did a big documentary on her uh, roughly around a year ago or so. Um, it's one of them tragic wrestling stories that kind of transcends the wrestling business because I felt like at one point China had transcended the wrestling business. She was in Playboy. Uh, she did the surreal life. Like there was a bunch of stuff outside of wrestling that she was doing anyway. But you can't really tell the story of China without the story of DX because she was there during the inception. She was there before it, actually, uh, when she showed up as uh, Triple H's valet. Now, this, of course, gets into her entire life before wrestling, which, and it was cool that her, her I think, I don't know if it was her sister or her stepsister was on here. It was one or the other. And uh, so it was good having the insight from her. But I'd pretty much gotten that story about how she got into the wrestling business. So that really wasn't anything new to me, or at least nothing that I thought was new. No, we mentioned they had the Vice TV documentary on China not too long ago. And uh, again, like you said, this is the, the very beginning of this breakdown here. Uh, it, there was a lot different, but still covering China's whole life, there was a, a lot of, of parallel, parallel storytelling. And that goes in, as we always must say, just just as we're here on the, the podcast talking uh, for people listening, being lifelong wrestling fans, too, we've seen varying things on China, uh, you know, because she was around since since the 90s, you know. So um, at the beginning here, there was stuff that was all kind of rehash stuff for me too. But there was, there was a lot as we'll get into that, that was kind of uh, eye opening as well. Yeah. And they talked about her sister talked about the first time they went to wrestling and how she wanted to get into it. And I think that they kind of vaguely go around a lot of the stuff. Uh, she was trained by killer Kowalski, which would also kind of explain her connection to why she'd go to WWE, why she would end up with somebody like Triple H, who was also trained by Kowalski. Um, but she became part, like, Triple H really didn't take off into stardom, really, until he had her. Um, he was floundering for a while. There was the whole click thing that happened that caught him in suspension. And about the time they were kind of loosening that up a little bit, that's when they ended up putting China with him. Uh she was kind of a polarizing figure right from the start. Like some people thought it was cool. Some people didn't like it. Uh, it was pretty much the first time in modern wrestling where a woman was physically handling men. Um, now they did get into her debut where she would attack Marlena, which was uh, Terry Runnels, AKA the wife of Goldust, the manager of Goldust at the time. That's something that sticks out to me. Cause I remember like she ragdolls the shit out of her and that was, you know, at that time period, they were really good at doing debuts. Like, I remember, like, the Vader debut where he beat the shit out of Gorilla Monsoon. Like, they were doing that stuff pretty regularly at that point. And the mem the most memorable ones ended up working for people that became star. Yeah, exa exactly. And, and that's the thing, too, is, like, just that image of her getting ragdolled and everything and, like, us wondering, like, who she was. And back then... You know, you had the comparison maybe, and this would probably be later on even, uh, just talking out loud at, at ECW with Nicole Bass, but there wasn't a lot of women in wrestling, surprisingly, in, in history that were like the big Amazonian women like that. Yes. So I remember that as a kid too. Is like she definitely, like everybody will go on to say, say to this, even when she was on the indies, 
just the fact that her body looked the way it did, she was the classic thing. She was going to be a, a star if everything could align just from her look alone because it turned heads and she commanded a room just because of the way she looked. And they were really smart when they would finally have her transition over with DX because, and they brought this up and I thought this is a great point. She played the straight man to everybody. So when everybody else is acting like an asshole, she's the one just standing there like trying to be stoic. Yeah. Um, that made her stand out. And they were good with it. They built that up for so long that whenever she first started showing her personality, it was a big deal. Like it made her a bigger star. It made the whole unit a bigger thing. Um, and, you know, it worked out for a while. She was a, That's one thing that I will give her credit that I don't think people give her enough credit for. She was a big part in DX. She really was. Like, she was a star. She was a, a major player. She was not a background person with them. Uh, it was instrumental in getting them over as heels because they were kind of cool and people liked them. That was one way that it would, they could piss off wrestling fans using her. Um, and it worked. And that would eventually transition to her leaving DX because they split up DX for the first time. And... I'll be honest with you. I thought she was done. I'm like, this isn't going to work for her because she's not with the group anymore. And I was wrong. Um, they transitioned her out. And in the first time ever in WWE history, she was in there with the men. Not just mixing it up with them, but having matches to the point where she would eventually be involved in a match for the Intercontinental Championship, which she would win. She is the first woman and the only woman to ever win that belt, I believe, up to this day. Yep. And she's also the only woman, uh, or she was the first woman to ever be in the Royal Rumble. The Mads Rumble, uh, yeah. Um, so they did that stuff too. So like, there was a lot of that kind of stuff with China that they did that people, it, it was too ahead of its time. Like, I even admit I didn't like some of that stuff back then, but looking back on it, I'm like, I get why they did it. It makes sense, frankly. It built her into a bigger star. And... It's weird because they talked about something on here where she was up for a contract and she didn't get it. And she wanted paid like the main men. And I'm not saying she should have been paid on the level of The Rock and Stone Cold and guys like that. But they probably should have paid her better than she was. She was, like put it this way, they didn't, it, even in the Attitude Era, they didn't have a face of the company. They quit doing that after Hogan because Vince kind of felt burned by that. So he never wanted one guy to be the sole face of the company. And in that attitude era, there was a handful of people that were the face of the company. And it's like Rock was one. Austin was one. Foley was one. Triple H was one. Undertaker was one. And then China was one. Sable was one for a while. Like, so, like, those people in that stratosphere probably should have been paid, to be perfectly honest with you, because they held cachet that was higher than just wrestling. And they didn't do that with her. I've heard everything from attitude issues and things like that. But, like, they were pushing her heavy. Remember when she'd come out, like, with the headband and the fucking the cannons and shit? They were pushing her really hard. The biggest problem for them back then is they just didn't have anybody to really match up with her with the women. So they put her quickly with men and then they had to transition her back to the women and that worked for her, but it kills the rest of the division. That's what happened. So they really, they really didn't know how to use her at that point. And then of course, like after this big giant period of being in the WWF, like where she was a major star and everything, 
then of course that means you go on the decline. Of course, she was in Playboy. The WWE released a book about her. Um, all kinds of stuff. She was, you know, big matches on shows, everything else, like an instrumental part of the card. And then just as fast as she had rose to that prominence, it went down the other side. Well, and real and, quick, hey, don't forget another career highlight for China. And that's one thing we we definitely loved. And, and it's so cool when this happens in WWE because, again, it's you know so fast-moving uh, of a situation in the WWE machine and everything, and like things will get thrown together. And some of the weirdest things stick. A lot of them don't. But when you have that weird thing that sticks, you know, it stands out. And, of course, that was when they put her with – Eddie Guerrero, Latino Heat, she became the that first Mamacita. Yeah, I just want to. Dude, that's when her personality fucking went yeah, up. Exactly. Like, and I mean, dude, it makes sense because if you figure she was with the ex, not always the best teachers, but there were things you could learn from them. But then when you're in there with someone like an Eddie Guerrero, who knows how to work with other people. Like she probably learned a lot of shit from Eddie. I believe that. Like as far as personality, how to present yourself to the audience. They that you know, like that full thing run ran the gamut where like, you know, they were on and off type shit. Like they were with each other and not with each other. So she was able to like basically have to be like a, a pretty white meat baby face and then kind of be the heel about it too. Like there was a lot of stuff. That that I'm sure that that helped her with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you can't learn from Eddie, it's one of those things. Yeah, because he's he's like a generational, generationally talented guy. So if you're around him and you're not soaking up anything, you're fucking up. And she clearly knew enough to do that. Um, now, this is something that I was glad that they covered in this. So after she would leave WWE, she would eventually end up in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And I wasn't sure how this was going to work because I was a fan of New Japan at the time and there was no women's wrestling in the company, let alone a woman wrestling in the company. And Japanese uh, at the time were a lot more behind the times than we were with this kind of stuff. There were very few male workers that would get in the ring with her. They didn't cover a lot of this on the documentary. But Masahiro Chono stepped up and was like, I'll have it fucking match with her and i don't know if you've ever seen their one-on-one match the jay they beat the shit yeah, out I, ha- of each other. I have yeah I, I've and it's at least really clips. good yeah it's really good um but like i'll be honest with you this is just my feeling on it i might be wrong here she did go there she did get a big payday and she busted her ass in that match and did very well and then she never went back and I'm assuming because of one of two reasons. Either one, they there was no one else that wanted to work with her. That's probably what the major factor was. Like, like Chono did it to kind of prove to the locker room, like, I'll do this and it won't hurt me at all. He did. It didn't hurt him at all. But nobody else followed And, and the same thing happened in the WWF with Jarrett. Like, Jarrett yes. like gave up a big stake and pretty much led to him leaving, too. And basically. here's something pretty funny. You know what they did not mention in this, by the way, the Jay. So remember that final match wherever, uh, you know, he beats her and then they do the dusty finish where she ends up beating him and winning the belt. Because yeah, that was that housekeeping match or whatever. Did you know what happened backstage before that match? That's where he held up the, the belt. That's where Jared held up. Like he was wrestling without a contract. Yeah. So he's like, I'm leaving anyway, brother. He's like, unless you're fucking, I forget what the amount of money was. I think it might have been a half million or $250,000. He's like, unless you give me that money right now, 
not losing the belt. I'm not even going out there for the fucking match. They had to pay him. And they did. And then he still got the win and then took the loss. So say what you want. Jeff Jarrett's a carny motherfucker. There's a <laughs> yeah. reason why he's still around to this day. Of it course. just is what it is. Yeah. But um but yeah, man, that that kind of hurt her in New Japan. Then that was pretty much her exodus from the wrestling business. Uh, most of the stuff that we would see after that would be train wreck shit. Um, they did cover the surreal life on here. They even covered the first sex tape that came out with X Pac in it, with him talking about a lot. Yeah, and I, so and I was, see, I see why had, but they didn't really get into her working for Vivid and that whole thing, which. It's fine with me. I, I just wanted to bring that up. Like, you know, the other kind of weird thing with that is the fact that as much as they were kind of staying away from, uh, uh, you know, because she was in porn for a significant amount of time and, yep. you know, not ridiculous, but at least a couple of you know, a few years and they didn't touch it, but they do run by the sex tape. So yes. know, that was kind of weird. But yeah, they, they stayed straight away from. But again, it's on A&E. They're not going to. Like check out they China getting gang banged, you know. No, they still could have at least talked about it. Yeah. Um, they do talk about and then it kind of basically cuts directly to the end of her life, which is the stuff that we are probably the most familiar with, uh, watching the Vice documentary that came out last year with her former manager who's kind of a scumbag. They were trying to do a reality show, they were trying to do a documentary. Of course, none of that ever came to fruition because she just was not in a place for that. And Probably the most interesting thing to me in this entire documentary was the stuff with Mick Foley. Uh, talking about her when they kind of reconnected to it on like the Comic-Con circuit. They showed her going over to his house for dinner and things like that. Yeah, she used to watch Noel, Mick Foley's daughter, when she would come to WWE events and stuff. She would like babysit her and play with her. And dude, it's weird. And I'm not trying to say this is fact, okay? Because this is a documentary. So, like, I don't know what a lot of people feel about her. Um, to me, right, the shit that, like, Road Dog was saying kind of just felt, like, disingenuous. Like, he's the WWE guy on the documentary, so he's going to be like, oh, she was great, and we had fun, and I miss her, and all this stuff. I'm not saying he's completely lying, right? But, dude, Mick's the one that, that got – Mick and X-Pac were the two that felt the most genuine to me. Yeah. Uh X-Pac always struck me as like he felt bad about the way everything happened. I didn't know that he never talked to her again after 2005. That's a fucking shame. Uh, and Mick Foley seemed genuinely hurt with what happened to her. Um, probably because he understands the business. It's not the first time he's seen this sort of thing happen to somebody. And he probably kind of feels the way that we do, the Jay. Like the business chewed her up and spit her out. She really didn't deserve that. And she didn't have the greatest life outside of pro wrestling either. So, yeah, it just, you do, you know, some people just get a raw deal in life. And that's kind of the way I've always felt about her from what I've known and the things that I've seen and read about her. So it's, it's fucking sad because it's not like she was a terrible person or anything like that. She just, the business fucking grinded her down to nothing. And that happens to people. And it's just unfortunate. And I think Foley even said this. It's just a shame that like she didn't have a single person around her like really looking out for her. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, one one interesting part of this was her ex boyfriend that was the last relationship uh, before Triple H. I believe he even said like she left him for Triple H or something, but he still cared about her. They were friends. He was like his big jacked up tattooed guy. Yep. But he had a pretty interesting take, you know, being in the relationship before trips. But to your point with that breakdown, hey Ed, I mean. She pretty much had the worst thing that could happen to a female talent 
happened when Stephanie McMahon, the daughter of Vince McMahon and Triple H fell in love. And Which, they, boy, they gloss over that, don't they? Of course, yeah, because Triple H was even in this too. And like you said, I think that's why it got pretty big ratings was seeing how the WWE, you know, as opposed to that pre-fermentioned Vice documentary that's independent of the WWE machine, how they were going to handle this. And then in the previews, you see Triple H making commentary and you're like, oh, now I'm really interested. And then you get the gloss over. Yeah, so it's not that it was bad because I didn't think it was bad. It's just... They're not willing, like, and this is what annoys me. They're just not willing to tell her entire history, frankly, because they played a big part in it. That's my opinion on it. Um, the trips, the company, uh, the way that a lot of things were handled. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some of that was her fault, too. I'm not trying to completely absolve her from anything. Um, but they held a lot of responsibility in what happened to her that I feel to this day they've never really been accountable for. And considering that they'll do stuff like this or put her in the Hall of Fame and things like that, it's kind of gross. Uh, not quite as gross as them having a memorial for her that they sold tickets to. Um, it was like a whole debacle of bullshit. Like, it's just, again, it's like the fucking people around her were horrible. Like, yeah, she, she had a falling quit. out with that's another thing we knew from the, the past documentaries that, that we knew, or at least I, speaking for myself, uh, that I knew of was her mother and her had a falling out when she was like 16. Never she, talked to her again. And her mom's in this too, and she seems goofy. You know, it's like, I don't know her. You know, we're just spewing on a podcast here, but just from what I see, it's like, yeah, I mean, China's just coming from a, a weird upbringing, and, you know, that's not going to help matters. Yeah, it kind of she just strikes me as the type of person that like nobody ever really loved, yeah. which is awful. Yeah, it's terrible because like, she, you know, like you said, man, she seemed like a a genuinely good person that that got a bad hand, and she had you know her issues before like the the dire issues, you know, which I I think the business eating her up and spitting her out caused eventually, of course having to feel like she had no other options but to do porn and being involved in in heavy drug usage and everything. And and, and like you said, hey, Ed, we, we were uh, avid uh, audience members of the surreal life at the time. And yeah. oh, you yeah. could really see, you know, we, we know how fixed reality shows are, but nonetheless, that was like a legit part where you could just see how fucked up China was and indefinitely how toxic her and Sean Waltman X-Pac's relationship was as X-Pac would even say in, in more recent podcast interviews and, and things that I've heard where he's like, yeah, we were just horrible together. Like we, we loved each other, but we were just one of those couples that, you know, we, we couldn't stay away from each other for that, that point, but we should have because we were just really bad together. It would like just up each other, you know? And, and cause he mentions yep. that he's like, once China found out what kind of drugs I was doing, we started doing them together, and that was yeah, kind of she was like, "Well, I'm doing this, yeah." Because and it's like, "Oh, geez," but you know that that whole surreal life thing. I even remember when we used to watch that, and we were all kind of like, "This is pretty fucking ghoulish that they're putting her on TV." Like yeah, that's this. what those like, shows this are. Is fucking I mean, you, wrong. you know, like it isn't I don't know enough about it. Like we've talked about that. We know some some things with personal experience with friends of ours and stuff that have gone through stuff, but. I don't know enough to say it's like you would think that that's like rehab 101 is like you shouldn't be like you're not even allowed electronics and things like that in a typical rehab when you first check in let alone like you're on fucking television 
Yeah, it's just, dude, that's the part of that whole shit that really, like, I was never the biggest fan of reality TV, but when it gets to, like, just full-blown exploitation yeah, of somebody. And, it, and, like, people it, will be like, oh, well, ugh. they're getting paid for it. Like, that's yeah, that, the that makes everything better. Yeah. It's like, cool, so I can pay you and just treat you like you're subhuman, but it's okay because I'm paying you. Like, that's not how that works. So... It's just gross. That's why I don't really watch a lot of shit like that. And I kind of never went back to it after things like right. that. You get older and you realize the, the levity and the, the truth behind it. And you're like, like you said, and it's well, gross, gross exploitation. And you're like, and I don't want, I, and I don't want any hand in this. Yeah, I don't want to be I mean. watching this yeah. and giving, you know, fucking rewarding bad behavior. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, it was a pretty good documentary overall. It's kind of what I expected from them with a little bit more than maybe I was expecting. It, it didn't feel like a cheap rehash or anything like that. In, in fact, I actually think this is one of the better WWE biographies that they've had on here because it, I felt like a lot of it was the genuine story. Uh, this just could, like, they, they weren't lying in this one. They just glossed over things that I thought they shouldn't have glossed over. You could have easily addressed them and not spent a shitload of time on them, but you, you should address it. It is part of her life and her story. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, just, just as the... Vice TV documentary was wrapping up. I felt the same one with this one, man, where I just felt so bad for China and it just made me really sad. Yeah, it's just another sadly tragic wrestling story. Unfortunately, there's a lot of them. So, you know, like me and you have always said to each other, the Jay, when we talk about it, like we love wrestling and we've watched it forever, but like we're not naive. It is an ugly, horrible fucking business that most normal people should really want nothing of like other than just being a fan or whatever like it's and it's gotten better through the years but there's still a lot of that stuff that exists throughout it it's not in any one company or anything like that it's just a really difficult business to deal with to be in to be on television to have to maintain your look to have to deal with the road like it's just it's difficult for anybody you have to be a special breed of person to even consider doing something like this and Unfortunately, there's no way to test people out on that before they decide to get into it. Exactly. And that's that's what's sad is like in a different age, you know, China might have been in a better situation, but that's just how things are in hindsight. You know, you could say that about so many things, but, you know, you would think if if Triple H never starts dating Stephanie, that sort of thing, like what could have happened if, if she does make a deal with WWE. And like you said, it's kind of a two-way street and business and, you know, she wasn't budging and we don't know the numbers or anything. Uh, but yeah, it's like she uh, supposedly kind of got pushed out of, of WWE and it was just a downward spiral from there. And to give her credit, um, they do this with a lot of people in the history of wrestling that, that it's just lip service. It's bullshit. It's, it, you're overblowing what they were. That's not the case with China. China was the first of her kind type thing to come along. She was a legitimate star in one of the biggest eras in wrestling history. Like that stuff is absolutely true. China probably holds a very big hand in the reason why a lot of the current women are wrestlers to begin with. Yeah, Beth that Phoenix, of course, is, looked up to her. Dude, that is, like, would you disagree with, like, she? that is absolutely all gospel truth as far as China goes. She was the first yep yeah because it was the diva era and china was never the diva even though she did playboy and things like that it's it's just you know like, like you mentioned it was tough for her to find a place because it was tough to talk men into putting her over or even working with her the the women just weren't believable at the time against her 
So, you know, they had that, another thing I just thought of had that was kind of random that I thought was cool, though, was Awesome Kong popped up on this. Yeah, I thought that was kind of good because she did have a relationship with her, you know, towards the end yeah. and things like that. So, and, you know, that's she even said, too, she gets pretty emotional and said, like, maybe if I would have tried to help and shit. But like, that's, you know, you can't. We know that from personal experience. You can't put shit like that on your head. Like, you just can't do that. No. It's not, that's not how anything works, sadly. It'd be, you know what? If it did work that way, it'd probably be easier to accept. Of course. And and another thing, speaking of that, hey, Ed, that just this comparison, because again, it was it was pretty recent, this other documentary. That's why I keep bringing it up. The Vice one. They, they showed all the stuff with her moving to Japan to be a teacher. And, and all that and that they they didn't talk about that in this one at all not that that was like a big aspect with her wwe run so i get it but that was towards the end of her life and that was like a very interesting thing from that but they did document. bring up the issues that she had there and how she eventually yeah they just talked back. about why she moved back yeah so but but yeah like you said overall just surmising it uh, very entertaining uh, very tragic uh, look at joni lore uh, aka china uh, but nonetheless, you know, it's good to at least celebrate her in, in the good times and, and, you know, not not judge her in the, the worst of times because not that it's an excuse for anything, but you see that there were reasons quite obviously that she had the demons that she had and, and why she had the need to self-medicate and, and became addicted and stuff. So it's just, yeah, it's a, a tragic story, but nonetheless, in, in the prime of it, a trailblazing story as well. It's like so many human elements, hey, Ed, it's complicated absolutely so very well put the j uh that is the wwe biography on china so now we go into the wwe rivals uh this is all john cena versus the rock now huh, of course they do the uh the round table here with freddie prince jr we have bailey jbl natalia and kevin nash in this one again um they get into the battle of them you know the the original icon versus icon type thing that they had because they've had three straight years of wrestlemania matches and dude i gotta say man this this episode sucked it just did it's it, there's nothing wrong with the rock versus cena rivalry it was good um they're not giving you the real story here they're giving you this glossed over kind of manufactured story that they didn't really like each other me and you talked about that off air we've even talked about that years ago we never thought that John Cena and The Rock really had an issue with each other. That was all just perpetuated well, uh, behind the scenes and everything here for the whole storyline. Yeah, because they show that at the end. So I'll I'll get to that when we're wrapping up uh, as far as that goes, just to bookend it, because they do, you know, that kind of gets brought up with, with Cena. But yeah, that was the issue. And the, the other part of this too, like, like I said, a lot of these things, just talking about the China thing, for example, in, in reference last week's rivals uh, for for another example to further my point with mankind versus uh, versus the undertaker it, it's the fact that even for a, a crazy wrestling fan as we said a million times over i i still you know in time going so fast here in 2023 there's things that i haven't revisited in some time and time time has gone for a while so that nostalgia factor that we always reference is there you know, like that was like that for China. That was like that for for mankind and, and Taker. Like I was saying, I'm like, dude, I, I got to watch the Boiler Room Brawl. I haven't watched that in 15 years and, and even Buried Alive again. Like now that I know the behind the scenes, that might be cool to revisit. With this, it's so recent. 
in, in the grand scheme yeah. of things. You know, I'm like, yeah, we just kind of watched this a handful well, of dude, years ago. I actually remember all this shit. So it just wasn't as interesting. Big, here's a big issue with this, right? So I'm going to use this season as my, my benchmark. So they did the rivals on Hogan and Andre, right? Who was Hogan's biggest rival? Of all time? Yeah. Andre. Okay. Who was Andre's? Hogan. Okay, cool. Last week, we got Undertaker Mankind. Who was Undertaker's biggest rival in his career? Yeah, same thing. Yeah, and same way vice versa. Would you agree? Yep. I can't say that for either one of these guys. You know, Rock's biggest rival was Austin. Cena's biggest rival was Edge. And they did a Cena Edge. Yes. Rivals. And they did Rock Austin. <laughs> yeah, they did Rock Austin. Yeah. I so mean, like this this is just a flawed one to begin with. Like it's not that the matches weren't good. It's not that the feuds weren't good, but like there were like these were year long things, right? Like the rock was not there the whole time. So they would deviate and go to other things and then come back to it. And then, you know, obviously when it's time for mania season, they go back down that road again. But that is exactly why. The rivalry is not the greatest because there wasn't weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months of TV buildup and angles and shit. Everything that they show is like a very small drop in the bucket that they can pull stuff from. Because remember, they would do shit where like these two would cut promos on each other for a half an hour. Yeah, I mean, and that that was the, the, the best, probably most positive thing I could say about Cena versus Rock is what they did after, you know, to build up the first one. It was after the year that The Rock hosted WrestleMania. Like, they they do these yep. hosts of WrestleMania. And in that particular year, The Rock hosted WrestleMania. And that's where The Miz made it to the main event. And the main event was John Cena versus The Miz for the world title. And uh, The Miz ended up winning. And then the next night on Raw, which is always known to be a, a huge night for Raw, if, if not the biggest night of the year for Raw, is the, the Raw after Mania. The Rock shows up and he challenges Cena for the following year's Mania. So as far as that goes, that was never done before. That was really cool. But then with The Rock having, you know, very sporadic dates, to your point, Ed, that's what kind of throws things off. Yeah, and there's just a bunch of, like, they talk about that whole thing about The Rock's Hall of Fame induction and uh, Rock and Brian Gewertz came up with that. You know, like they were roasting WWE stars and they threw in a joke about Cena being in the Marine. And they were like, Cena loved it because he thought it would get him a chance to get the match. And like that to me is all manufactured. 100%. I don't believe any of that. They knew that they were, Cena could get the match because he was the main guy in the fucking company. For as long for as you a get decade. Rock to agree to come. Yeah, you're not, you weren't going to have the Rock come back and be like, he's going to have this WrestleMania match with um, Val Venus. Like, no, you weren't going to do that. Like, it was going to be the main fucking guy. Or nobody. You know what I mean? So that that's why I don't even like this one. That's why I don't even think there's a lot of shit to go over in this one. Because most of it's just manufactured. There was never an issue. There was never a real issue. There was never a lot of real good storyline related stuff. They just had the match. They built them up for a long time period. They had them. They were good. That's it. It's That's why the fucking rivalry is not even that interesting. It's just they had three good matches. It was cool. That's it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's it was fun reliving some of the things. Again, I just point that out because that's what interests me is like the stuff I don't remember as much as the stuff I do, of course. And and I, it's like, again, it's something that 
you kind of get your memory rekindled, I should say, like with the fruity pebble bitch stuff. And yep. then, you know, Cena ends up getting a fruity pebble sponsorship out of like the insult and stuff. And, you know, there's yep. cool little tidbits like that. But again, I must use the, the analogy once again for this one. Hey, Ed, this is the ones that we're not into as much. That's just your glossy, basically visual magazine-esque kind of thing. You know, it's just and like the, uh, you could put it on the background, like okay, it's all right, whatever, and it just kind of comes. Well, dude, the Hogan Andre one, for example, that's something we've seen rehashed a million times over. I thought they did a really good, good point. job. With that. Yeah, there was some interesting uh, stuff. There was places that they went that previous ones hadn't, like the eighty feud and stuff. For yep, and the Undertaker and Mankind one was really cool because I felt like you know what, like they've well, like you said, that was probably arguably one of the best they, feuds ever. So yeah, that's well, going to work no they, matter what for a Rivals documentary if it's done right. Well, but here's the thing. They've done a ton of shit on the Hell in a Cell. They've not done a ton of shit on their entire feud. So like that's that was really cool reliving that. And then obviously you end up with the Hell in a Cell. Okay, great. That's cool. This one, it's like, eh. Like, I mean, there's not a whole lot to revisit. Like, I mean, if I really wanted to revisit this, I'm just going to go back and watch the three WrestleMania matches, and that's all I really need to worry about. I don't need to watch a documentary on it because it wasn't like it, – it's over a three-year time period, but it's not like Rock was working there and they were constantly doing shit. Like, it's – you know, and they, they fucking ended Punk's title reign with, with The Rock. Like, they just ended it with that. Like, okay, that's kind of weird. Like, so they, they – so, like – they had that feud and they did it to the detriment of shit that was going on in the company at the time. Like that, that's what began the whole argument of like, yeah, that's great. The rocks champ. Now, what are you going to do the whole year when he's not there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I was saying with, with limited dates, it's, it's tough. And that's why they don't do stuff like this all the time. And even there's all these rumors constantly about the rock coming back. And we we've discussed that and like go to triple H's comments where he's like, dude, you're talking to the busiest dude in the world. And then I was reading something from Meltzer where he really thinks that the rock's never going to wrestle again because of Hollywood, you know, the rock tore his fucking, yeah. Uh, you know, his abs in half, like needed serious hernia surgery. You know, you, you'll see those goofy articles pop up. Like, you know, why the rock as big as he is, doesn't have like a, a six pack and it's cause his fucking stomach's destroyed from, from wrestling. And so Hollywood's not going to let him wrestle. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it. Oh, when you got like literally that, billions or hundreds of millions of dollars invested in something, you're not going to be like, yeah, go go do that goofy wrestling stuff and then come back on to set. Yeah, it just doesn't. It, there's just something there that doesn't jive. I think The Rock also being 50 years old doesn't help. Um, that ship may have sailed. Like, I do think that he'll probably come back once. I think maybe. Yeah, that's what we said. He, he if, hasn't really had that go home match specifically i mean the last one was cena at mania is a good way to go out so if that's the case i don't think that will be the biggest deal in the world but like we kind of uncovered talking about this stuff he's not in the hall of fame either so i could see him in the next maybe year two max doing something and then you know he, like he's inducted in the hall of fame the same wrestlemania that he's going to have his last match but yep. other than that, I don't know. I still think it's a very up in the air thing, uh, no matter how you slice it with the rock returning the wrestling. Yeah, there's really no guarantees. So, and dude, we might be seeing the end of Cena there too. I mean, he's scheduled to wrestle Austin Theory at WrestleMania this year, but like, I don't know how many more of these he has in him. He's starting to look older. 
Um, he clearly doesn't take care of himself the way that he used to. And I'm, I mean, the scene is in good shape. Well, it's, I'm not you're, you're, yeah, it's not. yeah, exactly. Because if anybody knows, you know, you're comparing him in his prime when he's just going. Yes. To, you know, anybody will, I mean, Cena will say that. Like, yeah, dude, I'm not the scene of 15 years ago, of course, but yes. Uh, and you can't expect him to be. No. And, and, and like we were saying, just the bookend things, we were starting to talk towards the beginning about like the worked aspect of all of this. And I kind of yep. said, I was going to bring up, you know, Cena and he comes out at the end and in a worked way kind of explains because they show this footage of the rock and, and he after mania in the, in the back hugging and kind of talking things yeah. out. And you hear Cena saying like, you know, I'm really sorry, Dwayne, that I didn't give you a heads up that I was going to take it this far. He's like, that's just how I do business. And, you know, Dwayne's like, I got you, man. It's, it's cool. But again, th this is all work, like we were saying, completely. Because yep. then they, they cut back to Cena and he's like, yeah, he's like, I felt bad that I didn't, ha you know, have the chance or, you know, that I wasn't going to do business giving Rock the heads up that I was going to say and do the things I was going to do. But I felt like that's the plan I had to take. And I'm like, yeah, right, Cena. Like, you know, because because as we know, everything goes through Vince anyway. So like, you're not playing fucking Vince and The Rock. You know, it's like that stuff. The one they're proved. not going to let, and of course, because the company's not going to let you potentially piss off The Rock. And he's like, I ain't doing this shit now. Fuck this. Dude. Like, there's no <laughs> yeah. way they're going to let that happen. No. So, um, but yeah, it's kind of a kayfabe retelling of the whole thing, which is kind of has to be because there's no real issues or anything that happened in the in the feud in real life or even in the ring no major injuries or anything like that that caused any further problems or anything so you know like i said the three matches are fine and everything and i'm not trying to shit all over the feud but it's just not something that's really worthwhile to have an hour recap show called rivals on it's just not i agree with you it just would be better to relive you know, portions of the build up through the cock and then, you know, watch the matches on the cock as opposed to and just kind of seeing this kind of package. And I somehow missed this, but did you see what the newest ones are? For Rivals? For either, Biography or Rivals. Um, no, did you? Okay, no, I didn't. Okay, either. let's go so to that, our sponsor, the Interwebs. The Interwebs. Because um, I was, I was kind of curious to see because, like, I do, I'm kind of worrying that they're going to start going back the... Uh, the other side you know what i mean yeah because what what uh what week's this the third just like that yes or is it the fourth it'll well the new one will be the fourth so season three episode four this is cutting edge stuff here folks thanks for listening um so it is because i know they have like the sheet coming up so let's see all shows and of course, I can't find it offhand hand, but we'll we'll announce it. We'll 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 do it in the uh, the ads. So listen through the ads because we'll we'll look that up. But le left are Kane, Iron Sheik, and Dusty as far as the legends go. No, oh, I can't wait for the week for Kane. Mm. Anyway, but uh, but yeah, that's our breakdown of WWE Bible <gasps> and of course WWE Rivals. So, oh shit. It's Thursday Night Prime, guys. We got to go. Shit's about to take off. Uh, when we come back, Lionheart 1990. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Join us next week for episode 155 of the What's Real Podcast. It's another week of WWE on A&E with the biography on Kane and a brand new episode of WWE Rivals. Also, a double feature coming to us next week. It's Fridays at midnight. Ha! <laughs>
this is Timothy James with the Withrow Podcast, talking goose or goose for episode 155. The guys get all crazy and hilarious talking about hedgehogs farting, hunters being lost, drinking wayne water, idiots getting their dicks grabbed, and then their wives beating the shit out of people. It's just crazy on goose or goose. Join us next week. All that and much more next week on episode 155 of the What's Real Podcast. And we're back, and it is time for Thursday Night Prime. How you doing, the J? You still alive over there? <sighs> so we go through it, hey, Ed. We get in the zone. We're talking about scene in the rock, and it just gets us out of our preparation for TNP, and especially because we're doing it sporadically right now. It was on hiatus, and we brought it back for our March uh, movie madness, and they got me. Somebody snuck in here and clubbed me. I don't even know what I got hit with. Uh, my oh, wife Katie dude. came in here and found me. I'm doing okay, but I do, you know, I do have a concussion. So everybody listening, and, and hey Ed, uh, bear with me, dude. There, there's uh, the smelling salter over there. Yeah, if you want to grab those, you probably need them. Yeah, Nocturus already did give me some smelling salts. That's how I came to with staring oh, at his ugly used, ass. You did you you didn't use his smelling salts, did you? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah, the, that's not smelling salts. Of course. I'll just I was, say that. I was wondering. I thought I was feeling weird from the concussion, but no. I'm yeah, not it's, no, it's, to it. yeah, it's definitely from that. But so, I'll tell you one anyway. thing. Hey, Ed, I'm pissed off, and we have a double feature of Thursday Night Prime this week in March Movie Madness, so I am going to be prepared in the zone of breaking down Van Damage and Lionheart or not. I'm prepped for anything that's happening. I got all the cameras on. Noctorus is downstairs, so we'll see what happens at the end of the segment, but I'm ready. All right, fuck it. So let's get into it. So first up, we're talking about 1990s Lionheart with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, Leon Gaultier is a deserter in the Foreign Legion arriving in the USA entirely hard up. He finds his brother between life and death and his sister-in-law without the money needed to heal her husband and to maintain her child. To earn the money needed, Gaultier decides to take part in some very dangerous clandestine fights. Clandestine fighting, Bamba. <laughs> anyway, uh, of course, this stars Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, we also have uh, Harrison Page in this movie uh, who plays Joshua, who's like the MVP of the movie to me. He's like, uh, he ends up being Gaultier's like manager when he gets on the fight circuit. Uh, admittedly, dude, this is super fucking disappointing here. Brian Thompson's in this. Yeah. He's the, the main bad guy from Cobra. Completely wasted. Wasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and dude, there's some really weird shit going on here, the J. And I wanted to hit you up with this because this was your choice. So I don't know if you knew this or not. First up, Scott Spiegel, who plays the full, the pool fight bookie. Uh, that's the dude who directed the movie Intruder and was in Evil Dead 2 and wrote Evil Dead 2. Uh, also, did you notice Billy Blanks in this as the African Legionnaire? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> and dude, weirdest shit ever playing a security guard is Tony Helme. Do you know who that is? No, I'm not familiar with Helme. Oh, yes, you are. Let's just say... It's uh, 
it's the early 90s and you're watching WWF wrestling and Lex Luger's there and Tatanka's there and they call in a brand new bad guy who was the guy who ended Tatanka's win streak. Oh, Ludwig Borga. It's Ludwig Borga. That's right. Who makes an appearance in this. How fucking crazy is that? That that is. Uh, But dude, okay, so I got to bring this up because I was telling you this. So... I got this confused with death warrant and I didn't realize it till a pretty long period in the movie. Uh, Sorry guys. It's a movie from 90. There's going to be spoilers on this one. Um, But like there's a part where his brother eventually dies in the movie and he's talking to the doctor and he's like, do they know who killed them? And they're like, yes, they're, they're in custody right now, sir. And I'm expecting him to go commit some stupid fucking heinous crime to get put into prison. So I can go in there and kill the dudes. But that was something similar to Death Warrant. That's not this movie. (laughs) But I'd seen this movie before, but I just got them confused. But dude, okay. And it's also weird too, because the the fucking little girl in this is the young add-on sister that they brought into growing pains in the later season. Yeah, she's super hot now. I don't know if you saw an updated pick. I haven't actually. That's even weirder fucking just to think about that. But you know... That was, oh, okay, yeah, I see. Fair enough. But, yeah, she was a goofy-looking kid in 90, to say the yeah, least. Her. But, like, dude, this movie, I don't know. Like, okay, this is really fucking weird. And I feel like I haven't, and I mean, granted, we haven't done Thursday Night Prime in a while, but I feel like even on when we were doing them regularly, this wasn't the case. I like the movie, okay? But I don't like the fights, the villains, all the fighting dudes that he fights in this are shitty. Dude, Even the last one he's sucks. Horrible. None he, of he reminds dude, me of uh, you know a dude that Vince McMahon brings in. Always us with the the wrestling references, but got to do it. Just like the Great Khali or something like that. Like he's a big ass dude, but he's a fucking goof. And dude, the dumbest thing ever happens, right? This dude does not even get brought up in the movie. Until there's like a half an hour left yeah. where they're watching a video and they're like, oh, this guy's a killer. And it's like, okay. And then you don't see him again until they fight. It's like, the fuck? This is dumb. Like, that killed it to me. And dude, here's the thing, too. And we mentioned those dudes earlier, like Billy Blanks and fucking Tony Helmy. They would have probably worked better as the fucking fighters for Van Damme than the fucking guys that they had doing it. You, you know what else clashes with that that's hilarious? What's that? The fight venues. He fights what in a fuck? swimming pool with a onesie the, on. He fights in a racket club court. Yep, and he kicks a dude through a window, which, by the way, <laughs> the racket club dude, window. Th- this is what kills me, and this is like the dumbest shit imaginable. Um, do you know why those have windows like that? For the ball. No, because the glass is not breakable. Oh yeah, yeah. They use point. unbreakable fucking glass for that shit. So what are you doing? Like, you don't know that? Yeah, Van Damme's so strong, he kicked him through. I mean, now, dude, I will say this, and th- this is what kind of sucks about this movie, right? So you know the beginning part, like where he's like in the desert as the Legionnaire, fucking working, and then he gets to notice about his brother and shit. And they won't want to leave. See- yeah, yeah, and then but he like kicks ass, fucking grabs the jeep, gets the fuck out of there, dude. It starts out like this movie's going to be fucking amazing. And then it just gets weird. It deteriorates from there. 
And if it wasn't for fucking Joshua, like the black dude sidekick slash yeah, he's manager, the kind of who's great in the whole movie. Like, dude, there's one part where they're like, he's all dejected because he just found out about his brother. So he's like walking down the street. He's like, don't worry, man. It's going to be okay. They want, they're like crossing the street and you hear a car like, Ur! he's like, yeah, man. You stop that motherfucking car right there, man. We walk in here. <laughs> yeah. And then they keep going and the car's like, me. Yeah. I'm like, this dude not only fucking helps arrange fights for him, but also helps stop traffic when he doesn't want to pay attention to what's happening. <laughs> like, but it is a good character. Like, it's the one character, like, the redeeming I don't character. know why they did. Dude, uh, Van Damme, not a good character. Uh, the brother's wife, not a good character. The villains, none of them are any good. He's good. He's the only really good character in the movie, which is bizarre as fuck because he's a secondary character. Yeah, and Cynthia, that is the organizer and runs the underground fight leagues, is weird as fuck too. Speaking of that, she's Dude. not great looking to me. God bless her, beautiful Dude. lazy not lady, not my type. I'll say. I swear to God, they like. So I feel like they were sitting around writing this movie. And they were like, all right, so we have this this female villain character. Like, I just can't figure out how to flesh her out. Nobody could figure it out. And then they went and saw Major League. And they were like, ah, yeah. the fucking lady that owns a team. We'll make her like her. Because <laughs> that's exactly what that shit. It was like a mixture of her and the reporter chick from Bloodsport in one person, yeah. sort of. I'm like, okay. like, And, dude, I didn't know this. Until I watched this, obviously. But at the beginning, it's like, story by Jean-Claude. Yeah, I, I noticed that today for the first time. And, like, of course. And, dude, here's the weirdest part about this one to me. And it doesn't make sense because of the time periods and everything, right? The story is like a, a lazily done rehash of Bloodsport. Um, he's, when he's dressed like the Legionnaire at the beginning, I'm like, oh, that's how they fucking cast him in Street Fighter because he has the beret yeah, on the and shit. Beret. I'm like, I'm like, that's what they did. That's exactly what they did. That's not deeper than that. I promise you. Like, oh, definitely. But, but like, dude, again, I don't know how you feel about this. Uh, if Okay. Say I, I give you the choice. All right. For Thursday Night Prime, the Jay, we're going to watch these two movies. Which one would you like better? The one where the movie was good and the fighting sucked or the one where the movie was bad, but the fighting was great. Probably the fighting was great for these. Me too. Cause I'm not watching this shit yeah, to be like an Oscar winner. Right. right. So like, this is the first one that I feel like we watched in a long time. That was kind of like that. But like, I did like the movie part. I thought the movie part stuff was fine. It's just every time it came to the fights and it's Van Damme in 1990, I'm like, why are these all terrible? Yeah. Especially they had the one, and this, this again, got to call it the wrestling correlation. This would be used in wrestling. I remember us saying, like, this is like the Lionheart scene when they have all the cars in a circle. Yep. That's kind of a classic thing from this movie. And, of course, for that particular scene within that venue, Van Damme's character fights the Scottish dude. And he comes out, and Joshua's like, damn, this guy's wearing a damn skirt. And Van Damme's like, he's from Scotland. And Joshua's like, Scotland? Scotland, shit. Kick his Scotland ass. Pull off his damn skirt. I'd like to see if he's got any draws on. <laughs> yeah. like, what is going on? Yeah. I don't know who wrote that character. <laughs> yeah. Van Damme. I probably. can assure you. Drunk as they, hell. It was, no, it was not Van Damme. I promise <laughs> you it was not fucking Van Like, I feel like they just told, like, dude, just say whatever the fuck you want. And he did. And it was like, ah, oh, it was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know, but. 
dude, I was like, dude, this fucking scene where he just doesn't want to deal with the manager dude anymore. And he goes and gets like that breakfast burrito. Oh God. It's the weirdest yeah. thing. Like who the fuck was like, let's go have him eat the weirdest thing imaginable. And dude, in 1990, motherfuckers didn't even know what the fuck he was eating. Yeah. They're like, what? And he's in America. Like, he's in Los Angeles. Go eat something. Go get a burger or something. Like, that's just typical shit. But no, you got to be weird because even though they're in L.A., they're probably shooting in Bangkok. Yeah, exactly. So like, like Berlin. Like, my God. But, you know, nonetheless, there was funny shit in it. It is pretty entertaining. But, yeah, man, it's just whenever the fucking fights don't stack up, it's like, like... Dude, one thing that makes Bloodsport such a cool movie is like every dude that he fights gets some sort of a buildup beforehand, so you know what they're like. Yeah, it's character, you know, you know, it's character development. Even if it's not anything, you know, layered or like really complicated, it's it's somewhat of character development. This one didn't have any of it. For the no, for this the one's just like you're fight, you're fighting a guy with a pony. Yeah, again, you're fighting you're the fighting Scottish a guy dude with a, in a skill. Yeah. kill. And then like. There's just so like, and then the big dude, you like, you're like, Attila. get a beat van. Of course, I had to look up you're his like, name. Just, I knew it was goofy. It's fucking Attila is the main villain. Yeah, he is no, like, when I, like, I get it. These dudes are just faceless fighter dudes, right? But like, you know, like in, in Bloodsport, like Bolo Young got mad personality. He looks fucking cool. Like he's a shit kicker. They build it up a little bit. He barely says anything, but it works, right? Not this dude. They're just like, that's just. He's a bad motherfucker. Oh, dude, that's one of the, the fucking hardest parts of of kickboxer is when Tai Pang is he's kicking the pillar and Van yep. Dam's in the other locker room with his brother and he like sneaks in to look at him and it's fucking yep. intimidating as shit. He's just doing fucking Muay Thai kicks on a pillar like about to kick the fucking how the building down. And dude, see that's the difference here, right? Exactly. That's yeah, this that's good points. Well. But here, do you know who was fucking responsible for Kickboxer and fucking Bloodsport? Yeah, I forget offhand. Canon. Yeah, right. Yeah. This is not a canon movie. So, like, it doesn't have the whole deluge of, like, typical villainy guys. Like, there's no fucking Steve James. Yeah, there's, there's actually no layers. Bolo Young. Like, the dudes who were good at playing those types of roles. Yeah. You know what I mean? This just has, like, well, he's big. Put him in it. And I'm like, dude, you had Billy Blanks and Tony Helmy. Like, they would have been better in those situations than these dudes. Yeah, and Brian 100. Thompson. And they were big. Yes, bro, dude, Brian Thompson looks fucking huge in this. Yeah. And I'm like, they don't show him out of a suit. I'm like, that. Like, dude, I was even trying to remember during the movie. I'm like, does Brian Thompson become like a guy that he fights or something? Nope. They never even broached that fucking topic. So I don't even know why he was in the movie. He could have been literally anyone. <laughs> yeah, he's just a right-hand man of Cynthia. Yeah, and he could have been the villain. That would have probably... He plays a fucking great villain. Yeah, We've seen that before. Even before... Dude, he played a, He played the villain in Cobra four years before this movie came out. Yeah, they fucked that up. My God. But, you know, I do like Van Damme's character in the movie. Um, he's probably more likable in this than he is in a lot of shit that he's in. So I'll give him credit for that one. But, like, this just feels like... Somebody's like, we're going to make a canon-style action movie, and it just kind of fails throughout. It's not horrible, but it's definitely not good. Yeah, it's, it's good Thursday night prime fare, for sure, though. You know, it's entertaining, reliving some Van Damme. That's, that was kind of what led me to choosing this, was like, man, I haven't watched a Van Damme movie in a while, and Lionheart's kind of one of those ones that 
probably last watched the, the one of the longest of his, you know, because I'll always throw in Kickboxer, Bloodsport, the really good Van Damme classics here and there. So this one's it's been some time since I revisited. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, it's typical cheesy 90s Van Damme fare. But again, you know, entertaining enough, fun stuff for for the return of TNP. So I'll take it. Hey, and it's called Lionheart virtually for no reason. Yeah, that's a good um, it's point just too. a quick scene in the movie. But boy, did they pick a tagline pertaining to that name. So the J hit us with a tagline for Lionheart. When the streets are a jungle, there can only be one king. Hey, you know, of course, and, you know, they have those ones we'll read off to on the uh, the IMDb page. Yes, it, it's it's another one of those ones that makes no sense. It's like a contradiction, you know, contradiction a, a la arena remember that one where they're like there hasn't been a champion in a, a thousand years and then in the movie the, the prior champion's a character so yes. so this one it's honor or revenge he has no choice like you just gave him a choice honor or revenge and he's not fighting for honor <laughs> and he's also not fighting for revenge because the dudes who killed his brother are in prison he's fighting for money for the niece yes that's it. That There's no revenge. There's no like. Oh my god, that's terrible. No shit, hey Ed. Um, but wait knock, a minute. Just hit as me we, no, as we do here though, we have five star ratings. Yeah, we're gonna get the okay, ratings. I'm gonna keep this. an eye out. All right. So Lionheart, what do you got? Two and a half. Same here. So. Uh, we're going to take another quick commercial I got this, break. dude. dude coming up on me. Dude, there's... No, there's cops coming up. Here. Ah. What the fuck is this? All right. Hey, guys, we'll be hey. back right after this. Uh, whenever again. we come back, uh, 1986's Certain Fury. This is going to be an interesting one. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Come here, you motherfuckers. Hey, Yins, guys. That's right. It's your boy, the J, once again. As the great Chris Jericho used to say, representing the dub R question mark, the What's Real podcast. And I am here today for local Pittsburgh area independent production company, Churchill Pictures. And the J can admit, for those consistently listening week to week, we have ads for Churchill Pictures. You may be rolling your eyes, but this time, this week, I have a gift for you where you can watch some of our feature films for free for the first time. For those that don't know, Churchill Pictures is based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, established from the bond of two childhood friends. Churchill Pictures envisions creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Check all the information out at churchillpictures.com today. And as I said at the top of the ad, your chance to see their two feature films for free. Just subscribe to YouTube's Churchill Pictures channel. Go to YouTube. Subscribe to the Churchill Pictures channel and you'll be able to watch the full feature film, the 2012 Silver Ace Award winner from the Las Vegas Film Festival, Deference. Deference, the full movie, is for free on our YouTube channel. Then our second feature film, The Unsung, is now available for free on Tubi. Tubi is a free streaming site, just has a little bit of ads, but you can get used to them. Check us out on Tubi. All you have to do is register for Tubi, or if you're already registered, go on ahead and sign in on Tubi and just search The Unsung. The Unsung is now streaming for free on Tubi. Check us out today at churchillpictures.com or YouTube deference, Tubi The Unsung, Churchill Pictures. We create worlds.
And we're back, and it is time for part two of Thursday Night Prime. We got rid of all the, uh, I don't know, what would you call them, mercenaries? Yeah, so it looked like no no ninjas uh, so far here in 2023, but a handful of mercenaries. I was thrown off. I wasn't expecting the guys dressed like police. That was a little yeah, weird. Yeah, that's what we were We haven't talking. seen that yet. Yeah. Let's see, they're starting to figure shit out here. We're going to have to reconvene like we're dealing with you really soon. Maniac cop. I'm, glad, I'm, I'm just glad we're not doing this next week because we, we're going to need some time. Oh, I 100% to like, need time, Hayad. I got a pretty damn serious concussion. I mean, even besides the, the health stuff, like we need to really get back in here. Like we got to talk to Nuck. See what he's thinking because he's been lacking, I think, a little bit. But I mean, we have, we spent I mean, a lot of our budget already this year. It's Cam was talking about that. He's like, guys, first quarter twenty three, we're down like a whole quarter of a pretty decent sized budget. We we had, <sighs> yeah. So I mean, this is uh, anyway. This isn't for on the air. This is we need to discuss this off the air. But anyway, part two of Thursday Night Prime. We go back to nineteen eighty six with Stephen Gyllenhaal's Certain Fury. Teenage prostitute Scarlet and minor offender Tracy end up on the run together in the wake of a courtroom shootout. This movie stars Tatum O'Neill and Irene Cara. Uh, Peter Fonda makes an appearance in this one. And this is much different than what I was expecting. (laughs) You and I both, brother. In in a lot of fucking ways. So first and foremost, this movie has a running time of about 87 minutes. And it's fucking frenetic, man. Once it gets moving... It doesn't oh, dude, stop. The opening scene, pretty much. That's what got me. And it, the opening scene is pretty awesome. So it's in a courtroom, and like they're calling people up, and this one prostitute comes up, and she's like, singing she starts and singing, and then weird. cuts the dude's throat like out of nowhere, and you're just like, what and the grabs hell? his gun, and then it just turns into and, chaos, and then all hell breaks loose. And of course, in all of this, uh, a bunch of guards get shot, and fucking fire and gunfire ensues, and it leads Tatum O'Neill and Irene Cara to escape together, um, and they're basically on the run. Now, the thing about this movie that I was not expecting is, holy shit, does this one get sleazy as fuck fast? <laughs> First and foremost, because in 1986, this was a great idea, let's take our main character of Scarlet put her with a black girl and have her be horribly fucking racist. And I mean, horribly racist in this movie. And bombs dropped. I'm not going to say what the last line she says in the movie, but boy, is it fucking weird because it's followed up by a very like nice ending. It's, it's fucking bizarre, but uh, this one's a good one. I, I was really impressed by this. This one isn't like fight scenes and that type of action. This is more just like them. They have to continually keep escaping weird scenarios. And this movie takes a very dark turn whenever uh, Tatum O'Neill takes Irene Cara to a friend's house of hers, uh, which is a guy that she's clearly into or has some relationship with. Never hang out with a dude named Sniffer. Who is clearly a cokehead who also sells drugs. This eventually leads Irene Cara to taking a shower to basically almost getting raped uh, and even down to the point where she gets uh, they think it's a good idea to fucking shoot her up with a bunch of heroin and shit like there's some fucked up shit that goes on in this movie that I mean honestly like I know Tatum O'Neill at this point really was like kind of starting the downside of her career but Irene Carroll wasn't Um, and again like I said Peter Fonda shows up in this movie and my whole point is like and I like the movie, 
But I'm like, I don't understand why any of these people would do something like this at this point in their career. It doesn't really make sense. But I'm kind of glad that they did at this point because this is a lot more of an interesting movie than I thought it would be. We were thinking about it, too, because I've heard interviews with with Jake Gyllenhaal when he's been on podcasts and things. I think even uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, I listened to the the Mark Maron podcast she was on, and they talk about their both their parents were were in the entertainment business in Hollywood. And of course, as Hay had mentioned, Stephen Gyllenhaal is the director of this. So I'm thinking, yeah, some, you know, some friends doing some favors within this movie. Cause, cause I even mentioned to you, I'm like, I forget what particular star, but it was like a pretty high end star that Jake Gyllenhaal, like said, used to come over the house and was good friends with his dad. It could, could very well have been Peter Fonda doing a favor, doing something like this. And, and just at the, the outset here, because it was towards the beginning of the movie when the, the girls first escaped the courthouse that you were talking about, and they ended up in the sewers initially, and all the cops are looking for them. And they get to a point where they kind of get trapped. There's uh, you know these, this gate up and, and bars, and they can't get through. And they're like in this water in the sewer. And this cop uh, catches them, but he's by himself. So he like radios in, and he has uh, his gun pulled on them, and they can't go anywhere. And he puts a cigarette in his mouth as he has them. And he's just like this goofy actor, of course. And he's like, yeah, I I can't believe you guys made it down here. I didn't even know this existed. It smells like the universe farted in here. And then lights the cigarette and it blows up. And they're literally like, sewer (laughs) gas. it's (laughs) It smells like the universe farted in here. That's like we always talk about the writers. Like, this is a good one, man. We'll have people cracking up at this. And then they're like, uh, like now they watch it. They're like, I can't yeah, believe it doesn't even wrote doesn't that even make fucking sense, <laughs> dude. This this sums this up very well. Every once in a while, I do this here on the show where I go to Letterboxd. This is part of a review from Mushy Minion, and this sums up me watching this movie. First two minutes, oh man, legal drama, not really my cup of tea. After the first two minutes, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's like, uh, you know, we always say that, that aspect of going into a movie, knowing nothing about it, really. And that was the case for me. And I, yeah, I could attest to that, too, because like we talked about the the chicks singing and somebody's like, oh, somebody grab her. She's just crazy. And the cop like comes up to her and just just slices his throat. And then it just goes from there. And just like you said, just frenetic, man, just doesn't stop. And I mean, dude, this is something else I wanted to bring up. So. There's a violent rape scene with Irene Cara that concludes with her almost killing a dude by beating the ever-loving shit out of him with a bat. And dude, I don't know if you caught this or not. This is something they don't do in movies that I kind of like. Dude, that dude was all fucked up and she's like walking away from him after he's like, you know, fucked up and out. And he's literally just laying there like, Ugh. yeah. Uh, like it's fucking disturbing yeah (laughs) and i'm like man this movie's not like this isn't like uh like foreign levels of sleaze but like this shit fits perfectly in with almost any grindhouse you would have had like this movie would have played very well in all of them because of all these fucking sleazy elements and just like Every character, like Irene Cara plays somebody in this movie that would be probably considered a decent human being. Like she might have stolen a car. Yeah, that's what they say. She just has a misdemeanor and like her dad's a a doctor. And and, and it's the same thing with Tatum O'Neill. Like she might have stabbed somebody you don't know. But then like 10 minutes in the movie, you're like, I believe she probably stabbed the motherfucker. Yeah, they think she killed a cop. 
Dude, every single person they encounter in this movie is a degenerate piece of shit. Yeah. I mean, dude, Peter Fonda shows up. You're like, ah, there's Peter Fonda. In three seconds, he's literally about to kill her ass. Dude, that that scene was crazy. She spits on him, and he instantaneously, he's holding a a razor blade, and he just cuts the fuck out of her cheek. Dude, like, what is he? He even, he, like, calls the guy up, and he's like, He's like, get this bloody bitch out of here, or, like, let let this this bitch bleed outside off my boat. Get this bleeding (laughs) cunt out of here. And I'm like, God damn, Peter Fonda. Fucking Stephen Gyllenhaal must be your boy if you're like, I'll say whatever. Well, you know what? Hey, this was uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. as his first feature film. So maybe he's like pulling strings like, Peter, this is my first one. Would you mind doing it? Hey, I mean, I'm a little disappointed I didn't see this before this because this shit's right up my alley with like sleazy, weird shit. And I'm a little disappointed because I know a bunch of motherfuckers that would love this that know nothing. Yeah, about hidden it. gems. So, yeah, good, good find, man. We always and shout that, out that to was Tubi. Random. And both of these were on Tubi, so you guys could watch Lionheart and fucking, uh, you know, fucking Certain Fury on there, you know, for absolutely nothing. So you can't really go wrong with that. But yeah, I was really, really surprised by this one all the way around. It's entertaining. The pacing's good. Uh, I thought the acting in it was surprisingly good, considering it's definitely better than than it was in Lionheart. I'll say that much. So, you know, even with the subject matter and everything, this one was just bonkers from, from beginning to end with the cast, with who they have, with the action. Like, I wasn't disappointed in it. Uh, you know, the, I will say the end's pretty fucking weird. Like, yeah. you, you could tell they didn't know how to end it. Well, not just that, but they they have one of those fucking scenes at the end where, like, they're filming dialogue behind the actors' heads. Yeah. So, like, they didn't say it. They had to record that shit later. So, uh, it just feels, like, abruptly ended and kind of a weird ending where Tatum O'Neill gets shot by police running away from them. And then they're both kind of like, it's going to be okay. And then it kind of, like, fades away. And you're like, it's not going to be okay. You're both going to prison if she doesn't die. Yeah. So, like, it's not a happy ending. And they're playing happy ending music and everything. I'm like, this is kind of bizarre here. This is where the movie loses me a little bit. But nonetheless, it's definitely worth a watch, especially for, like, Thursday Night Prime-related shit because this one's, like, way out of left field wacky, and it's really cool because of it. Solid Friday night in a six-pack kind of film. Absolutely, 100%. So... Uh, do you have a, a tagline for this one? That you this one actually had a bunch of them. I have three different ones. Uh, the poster one is two Academy Award winning stars in one motion picture that hurls them from innocence to fear to rage. Nothing black or white when you're fighting for your life. And then the third here is they will do anything to stay alive. <laughs> okay, Simple. so they will do anything to stay alive is probably the video poster. Yeah, exactly. The fucking... The black and white one was the drive-in poster. And the fucking two Academy Award winning stars is them trying to fool you into thinking that this is like an A-plus movie when it's just like B-action shit. Exactly. Um, so that not too bad. But uh, as we do here on the show, we have a five-star rating scale. The J, I'm going to give this one three and a half stars. All right, I guess all the three for certain Fury Hale. All right. So... That is a very double or special double feature of Thursday Night Prime. If we survived, so hey, guys, give us a Homer that. Simpson. Woo! Woo! 
indeed. We are still here. We are still standing. And we are going to take our final commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. We're going to talk some goofs. So stay tuned. We'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. It's live. IWC Professional Wrestling. Saturday, March 25th at 7 p.m. at Mark's Court Time in Elizabeth, PA. This is 22. 22, celebrating 22 years of IWC, also live on IWCWrestling.com and Fight TV. What's the most action-packed segment weekly podcasting? Thursday Night Prime. What segment of weekly podcasting do the hosts literally put their lives on the line? Thursday Night Prime. Join us each week in the month of March for the most action-packed weekly segment in podcasting where Hey Evan and Jay look back at all kinds of weirdo B-action movies. It is Thursday Night Prime. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs Are Geeks. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? Uh, take it in. Hey, Ed, and I can't take in my big breath as for those that have stayed with us, I thank you and I apologize for the current state of my sinuses, but here in the Northeast and specifically Pittsburgh, the, the weather's like some super villain from Bond has like the weather machine from like Goldeneye. We've had we've had every season imaginable today. Literally, I, I told you I woke up. It was gloomy and rainy. I was driving to a work appointment, so I had to drive, travel some distance. I was in snow flurries at one point, and then I was coming home. It was bright and blue, and I'm thinking, what a beautiful day. And I get home and get out of the car, and it's like 30. It was like freezing. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And you wonder why I'm stuffed and been blowing my nose for 12 hours. Yeah. And I mean, we've had 70 degree weather recently. We've had freezing weather recently. It's been real fucking terrible, frankly. I just wish spring would get here already. But it is always beautiful here at the What's Reels Lagoon and Waterfall of Goose. Hey, Ed, that's a sure thing. And, and, that's true. and absolute perfect timing. As for ambiance, Ed and I have referenced it before. We have kind of our setups. I have my TV going on here in my office at the What's Real Studios in the background. And it is about to be the dancing scene of Jean-Claude Van Damme, full flow of the show from Kickboxer. One of the best okay, dancing scenes you're ever. watching. It's Tubi. It's just running. Oh, son of a bitch. I was going to put it on right now just for that. Yeah, I think I asked you that. Like, if you, if you just ever, like, let Tubi run and you look back and, like, the weirdest shit ever is on. So I love that thing. Yeah, it does get a little weird because you never know what the fuck's going to pop up. Yep. But welcome to GRG Goofs, our goofs for the 154th episode, hey, Ed. Getting up there. Holy shit. Of the podcast. So first up, we're starting with something that I, as we do here, I'm going to send to Hey, Ed, on the Twitter webs. And it's one I'm going to put the volume on for us because uh, I don't know if you had caught this. It's, it's of course, a, a viral video. Uh, let me just get that to you here. Hey, Eel, send via direct message, and it's on your way. Ever heard okay. the fart of a hedgehog? Because you're I about have not. to. Here we go. Get the volume up. Damn. Nice little fart. I just like the last part where he's just like shaking the shit out of his leg. Yeah, he's, 
it's just like but yeah dude like i swear to god i this would be something i would like i'd have a camera set up outside and i'd, I'd like be calling you in the middle of the night like dude i caught a hedgehog farting on my camera <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's exactly what you would think i thought it was going to be some crazy thing it's just like Not like gotta love it. Yeah, not some insane thing like an ox farting. Little fucking hedgehog poots. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But since this kind of goes into uh, something we were talking about last week with the sailor uh, France Elvis Francois that uh, Hines was looking for because he survived like ketchup. So (laughs) this one was a hunter that was lost in the Amazon jungle for thirty-one days. He survived by eating worms and collecting rainwater in his boots. Yeah, that sounds like somebody that would survive in the rainforest there. And of course, uh, you'll never be able to guess his name. Jonathan Acosta. Hey, and he's 30 years old. Was hunting. That also sounds like what his name would be. Yeah, from northern Bolivia, of course. And uh, he somehow became separated from the group per multiple reports and ended up living in the fucking Amazon by himself, eating insects, worms, collecting rainwater to drink from his boots. <laughs> this, this dude was literally living cannibal Holocaust for a month. Like <laughs> I'll be fine. I would have died at 13 seconds into being there. Yeah. He was out uh, without a machete or a flashlight when he got lost and said he lost nearly 40 pounds and dislocated his ankle during the harrowing ordeal. But all things considered, I'll, I'll take the weight loss, you know? Well, dude, that's literally a place where like tiny insects can kill you. So it's like, I don't know how the fuck he did that. And if I was out there, it'd be like, it's one thing during the day, but then like it starts getting dark and you're like, oh yeah, I have no lights. This is going to be fucking fun every night for 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> like, fuck that, man. Yeah. His Ugh. brother was uh, interviewed by a Bolivian newspaper and said that his brother, uh, when he dislocated his ankle on the fourth day, started feeling fearing for his life and, and then it's basically like which is true i mean the amazon on planet earth is like a real life pandora like from the the movies you hate the uh, avatar films but oh, yeah. he said he, when he wasn't eating bugs jonathan managed to find and eat a wild papaya like fruit that locals call gargaretius and then they say that he did have a shotgun but there was only one cartridge inside and Jonathan used that final cartridge to warn, ward off a group of pig-like animals known as Picaris. Oh yeah, I know what those are. Those are they're basically like warthogs. So he also faced jaguars, ant eaters, and alligators. Uh, you know, slept for a week with animals appearing at every turn, or I'm sorry, barely slept yeah. during his first week. Yeah, there's no one. Dude, that's why I would die because I'd fucking be so exhausted that I'd just end up falling asleep and then like something would eat me. Like, yeah, a crocodile got him. He was sleeping. <laughs> yeah. He's, he thanks God profusely, hey, Ed, because he was given a, a new life. But man, what a what an ordeal. And it just goes into the flow of the show from uh, our boy Elvis Francois from surviving on Heinz Ketchup. Yeah, motherfuckers are savages, bro. Did you hear since then they did find him? Remember last last week we were talking about Oh, did they? Heinz was reached. Yep, they're gonna buy him a new boat. So good well, for at you. Least they're not giving him a bunch of free ketchup because you're probably never gonna eat that shit ever again. Yeah, that, that's the one catch to it. <laughs> like my taste for Heinz ketchup like, is absolutely gone. 
I mean, dude, put it this way. People think that's bad. You know, it would really suck if you'd have to, have to survive off like hunts for, <laughs> yeah. for 30 days. Or those ones that are even worse than hunts. You mean cats? Up? Yeah, it's like royal cats up from uh-huh. Bolivia. What the fuck? Yeah, that's when I won't eat ketchup. I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. Fuck that shit. I just, just, I just sent you this one, too, so you can check out this video. We're not huge weapon guys, but we have to start looking at things like this for the when we do the Thursday Night Prime segment. It's an oh, M134 minigun with tracers, and it looks like something straight from a sci-fi movie while demolishing a Jeep. It can fire up to 6,000 rounds a minute. Well... I think it's safe to say that I've never wanted anything more in my life than I this. already put a call in to Nocturus. So our general Holy is seeing what he could dude. do in the uh, black weapon market. Bro, I'd fight a fucking army with this gun. Oh, it looks like myself. something from goddamn Terminator, like Judgment Day. With literally my level of shooting ability and everything. I'm like, I'm fine. Yeah, let's fuck with this whole military. I'm uh, No problem. For those listening, that thing's insane. you could check it out at at how things work on Twitter. And uh, yeah, it's basically like a laser show. This M134 minigun just shooting lasers, just tearing up this Jeep like it's nothing. And if there was anything in the Jeep, they'd be Dunsky. Yeah, man. That's uh, that's some pretty intense shit right there. Like, I don't even know. Like, I almost want to seriously like go online and read specifically what this is and what it does. And when it will be available. Yes, and how much are they? Because I need to start saving my money right now. I sent you this one. It's our viral video of the week here on GRG. It's entitled, uh, Ma'am, I don't think that re- that's the refrigerator door handle. Uh, people were standing in a convenience <laughs> store, and this young girl goes to grab the handle to get some pop, but she's not really paying attention, and she grabs this dude's dick, and the dude's wife happens to be standing there and slams her to the ground and starts beating on her. Then she slaps the husband. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, why the fuck would like, I, I don't, okay, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, start, oh man, dude, she fucking, even after the fact, she fucking drills the shit out of this broad. Yeah, she was pissed. Like she smacks the shit out of her. Yeah, that's, you know, but that will happen, man. If you, you know, you're, you, shit, you know my wife, dude. If some chick grabs my junk, no matter the situation right in front of her, Shit's going downtown, I, baby. It is kind of funny that the dude, like, the dude just like lets it roll it oh, for like course. a minute. Like, My God, dude, she smacks the fucking thunder out of <laughs> yeah. her, man. As we saw her, wow. as we say, her soul's gone to the shadow realm. Yeah, that's. That's what my wifey's going to be like. Shit. I sent you this yes. one. This was a tweet from Elon Musk. Because science found another no. ancient glyph head. A penis drawing that can be seen from space has popped up in Australia. And it's not Man, even the first fuck. one. <laughs> can you see? Fuck him. Yeah, but- He's a purveyor of fucking dick scripts all across <laughs> yeah. the world. That's why you become a billionaire. So you can look at pictures of dicks all day. Exactly. Uh, that's right next up you're gonna love this one hey ed it's viral video number two of the week uh the entitlement of the article is if you run up on stage you deserve this and this dude gets 3d'd for real you seeing this oh yeah yep so it's at a rap concert for for our listeners and (laughs) he runs on stage and two of them you look up 3D, but that's exactly what they do. The one guy lifts them, and the other guy just DDTs them from midair. I didn't realize that me and you were performing at a rap concert in Florida last weekend. I know, that's something this we is would something do, we would definitely do. 
Yeah, like like I would just turn around and I see like the dudes and I'm like, oh, and I love the three. audience like, goes nuts <laughs> as they, dude. I swear to God, I could be at that concert and I'd turn to you and I'd be like, this is the greatest part of the whole night. Like that dude's destroyed. He's going out on a stretcher. As we say on the show, this counts for copyright. So those listening, you can't steal our idea. It has been pitched on the What's Real podcast episode one fifty four. This is uh, what I was going to pitch for you for a possible script, Ed, as okay. a Jack Daniels whiskey fungus is engulfing a Tennessee town. So feeding on the ethanol fumes created by the whiskey, the fungus is thriving in the Tennessee county of Lincoln, where it's been coating everything from homes and cards to road signs and trees. And one resident is suing the county. And all your boy is thinking about is Stephen King from Creepshow. Creepshow, 100%. <laughs> yes. That's a... I was like, well, that's nice to see that fucking meteor shits everywhere in fucking Tennessee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is uh, the caboose, as we've been calling it, of the week of GRG 154. I just sent it to you just for the picture because I'm sure you remember this kid. It was this poor kid crying because oh, yeah. he was bullied and, um, you know, kind of looks like he has some physical deformities. <laughs> and it says on here, remember when Chris Evans invited this kid to an Avengers premiere and it turned out the kid was getting beat up for being racist. <laughs> you got to love that. So you stupid. Fuck. Yeah, as we say, 2023 <laughs> for you. But between hedgehogs farting, hey, Ed, hunters being lost again, the three, the MI 34 minigun that we're going to get here for Thursday Night Prime. Dick grabs and everything in between. Truly, goofs are goofs. I'm going to say real quick here, I'm fucking impressed this week. Like, I don't know what my favorite one was this week at all. And I usually can pretty much zero in on that. But between the laser gun, the kid getting beat up for racism, and the woman just smacking the utter fire out of the dick grabber girl, like... This is this is some of your best work. Yeah, we brought so the I fire. appreciate that. But uh, but yeah, that's about it for us this week here on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed everything you listened to. If you're listening on iTunes, feel free to give us a five star review. Helps out the algorithm and gets more eyes and ears on the program. Of course, you can listen each and every week on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and each and every week on ChurchillPictures.com. Of course, if you have something you'd like to add to the show, and I'm guessing you probably don't because most of you are cowards, uh, you can send it to us at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. And I'll tell you what, if you guys send us an email this week, uh, we will send you a check for $50,000. So just so you know, if you guys need some money, uh, make sure to send us an email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But before we get out of here, here the J revving it up. So the J, take it away. Revving it up, hey, Ed, like the J's dancing even worse than Jean-Claude Van Damme, JCVD himself from Kickboxer. Says it all. That impossible. <laughs> to all the usual shout outs, love the show. To our producer, the wizard behind the boards, Cam. Thanks for what you do, Cam. Y'all listen to know how it is. That 16K consistent, constant, weekly sound we appreciate you hey ed my bro another great journey another great ride it was a fun blast as always and i can't wait for next week and for all of those with us on the journey i love all of you stay healthy uh check in on your friends because i have a hell of a support system i've been going through a lot of shit i'm going to shout you out hey ed and, and all my inner circle for being there for me everybody's been checking in um nothing crazy peeps out there i just have a, a lot of stressors going on a lot of it's good problems to have but I appreciate everybody checking in on me. And without that support system, who knows where I'd be. So appreciate that. 
and love the escape of the show. That's why I say the Steve McQueen and it just did bullshit with my boy for three hours uh, with the, the whiz putting things together. As I lead the charge from Hey Ed, stay healthy, stay safe out there. You'll hear the J next week. So that's about it for us this week. Of course, shout out to our producer Cam for all the hard work he puts on the show because as we know here on the program, nobody beats the whiz. The J, clang, 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 brother. And I'll tell you anytime, man, how, what kind of a podcast tag team champion would I be if I'm not checking in on my tag team partner? So, of course, the reign continues, still undefeated, still not going to be losing anytime soon. So uh, that's about it for us this week on episode 154. Don't forget to join us next week for episode 155 and beyond. So stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you here next week. Also, the $50,000 email offer does not count in any state or country in the world. So, uh, and we will see you here next week on the What's Real podcast. What's real?